Brothers and sisters, my goodness, the systematic theology does not stop this week. In fact, this week we continue with provisionism with our guest, Dr. Leighton Flowers from Soteriology 101. Uh, Leighton joins Chris and I to discuss provisionism. Now, this isn't the opposite of Calvinism. It is, however, another ism. And he kind of makes that joke. It's sort of his approach, what he is seeing the scriptures say when it comes to man and the responsibility for their choice to reject Christ or to follow him. I'm not going to explain it all. I'm going to let Dr. Leighton Flowers do it. I'm going to go ahead and shut up. Brothers and sisters, enjoy this episode. I'm excited for this episode. I want to jump right into it. So, Chris, we just finished up the discussion about Calvinism. We're going to jump into the next topic, uh, provisionism. Yeah? Yeah. Dude, I'm super excited. We have a guest joining us, uh, Leighton Flowers from Soteriology 101. Leighton, do you want to kind of give a rundown, give yourself a pitch to the listeners? Yeah. Uh, well, I am uh, actually the uh, director of evangelism and apologetics for Texas Baptist. That's my real job. Um, that's what I do most of the time throughout my day. Um, and I'm a, a husband of my, my wife, Laura, is a, a family marriage counselor, and I've got four children. And so most of my time has nothing to do with the doctrines of Calvinism and Arminianism and provisionism. But uh, on the side, uh, I created about I guess back in 2014, created a ministry called Sociology 101 that kind of talked about the work I was doing on my dissertation. Uh, I had been a Calvinist for 10 years and left Calvinism. And so I had written uh, extensively on that topic. I've got a couple of books uh, on the topic. And so uh, I saw just kind of a void on the Internet for robust, deep biblical teaching uh, from those who oppose or disagree with the, the presumptions that the Calvinist oftentimes, I think, bring to the text, a very westernized kind of approach that's very uh, influenced, obviously, by Augustine and Calvin. Um, and and I, I don't agree with some of the presuppositions, though I have many friends who do. And um, and I still uh, have a lot of respect for those uh, who hold to a more Calvinistic perspective, but I just disagree with their, uh, their starting premise and some of their concepts and ideas and the way in which they interpret several passages. And so I started a ministry called Sociology 101 with its own website, its own Facebook page, its own Twitter page. And the reason I did that is because I didn't want my ministry with evangelism to be overrun with this controversial doctrine. Uh, if any of you have ever done any kind of a post about Calvinism or predestination or election on your home Facebook page, you know it can quickly uh, overrun everything else. And so that's one of the reasons I created this as kind of a side ministry versus just making it incorporated with my everyday work is that I I, I want to keep the main thing, the main thing when it comes to evangelism and reaching the lost and and understand that this is an intervarsity debate, so to speak. This is a, a intramural debate, so to speak, with, uh, with brothers and sisters in Christ and that we can show love and respect to each other while still disagreeing with each other uh, and, and standing firmly on what we believe the scriptures teach. And that's been the goal of Sociology 101, to speak truth with love, uh, with respect towards each other, try to represent uh, the other side the best way we know how, uh, even though sometimes uh, you fail at that because there's many different kinds of Calvinists, and uh, Calvinists are very uh, rarely satisfied with uh, my representation of them, but um, I try to play them for themselves. I have them on the program. I read their sources uh, for our audience uh, just to see for themselves. And so I try to give a fair representation of what most Calvinists uh, today are teaching and believe, and and uh, then vice versa, what we would would uh, 
you know, believing contradiction to what they teach. And so that's kind of uh, my background and what I, I suppose I'm here today for is really to talk about the doctrines of grace and soteriology, uh, Calvinism, Arminianism, and what we have coined as provisionism. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, so thanks for coming on. Uh, Leighton, I, I, I'm sure you see this too, but one of the struggles with talking to a Calvinist is like you just said, it seems like every individual is different in some aspect. So it seems like you're always having to go, well, what did you mean by this term? How did you, how are right. you using it? Yeah. Um, David Allen is a friend of mine, is a, a professor at Southwestern where I went to school. And uh, he's a kind of a leading scholar on the doctrine of atonement. Um, and he has a, a famous statement that he has repeated over and over again is that that Calvinists have the same vocabulary, but a different dictionary. And yeah. and what we mean by that is not to be disrespectful. It's just that sometimes defining of the terms is the heart of the disagreement. And a lot of people are talking past each other. A prime example of this is when a Calvinist might say, we believe God is sovereign, as if we as non-Calvinists would not agree with that statement. Of course, we believe God is sovereign. But what do you mean by calling him sovereign? Right. Do you mean he's determining every thought, action, and deed of humanity? Uh, or do you mean that he's the ruler who has the, the right to rule as he pleases and to accomplish his purpose despite um, our free moral actions? What, what do you mean by sovereignty? Um, and so th those are the kinds of things that you have to get into when you're talking about these issues. Uh, Calvinists will say, we believe men are depraved. And we'll say, well, yeah, of course, of course men are depraved. Uh, but what do you mean by depravity? Right. Uh, do you mean that people can't confess that they're depraved, even in light of the law and the gospel? Is that what you mean by depravity? Um, and and that's, where, that's where we really get to the heart of the issue is really what do you mean by that term? And where are you getting that? Is that just something that you've been taught by your Calvinistic predecessors? Or is that something that directly comes from the text? Um, is it is it a biblical concept? Those are the kinds of questions we've got to be willing to engage and ask if we're going to be uh, true to the text. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the total depravity was was one of the big ones we discussed because Chris and I would agree. Well, you, you have to agree. Man is totally depraved. You can't argue around that. But our point or our objection is how does total depravity therefore equal total inability? And I'm I'm not seeing it. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. Um, and and that that's a lot of times where the confusion comes. I know a lot of people who say they're two or three point Calvinists and these kinds of things. And I'll just press them a little bit and say, well, when you say total depravity, what do you mean by that? Because most of them don't mean what Calvinists mean when right. they say total depravity, because what Calvinists mean when they say total depravity is that you're born not only fallen and broken and sinful and corrupt, which we all affirm, but you're also born unable to recognize and confess that fact in faith, even in light of the law and the gospel coming to us by God, right. calling us to repentance and faith and reconciliation. Um, and that, that's a huge distinction. <laughs> so you've, you've got to bring that distinction into the conversation in order to understand what, what is my opponent, you know, my theological opponent here, who may be a dear friend, what are they meaning when they say these things? Right. And is it a biblical concept? That's, that's the important thing. Right. Well, if, can we back up just yeah, a yeah. touch? Okay. So first, I, I just wanted to say that I, something you had mentioned about representing uh, the opposing view well, that's something that I, I really appreciate about your ministry. I feel like that's something that I see you do very intentionally, um, and I definitely appreciate that because I agree that 
we've got to be able to have some dialogue. We got we need to be able to have a conversation and, and sort of tease these things out. And so, so I appreciate that. First of all, uh, I guess I wanted to maybe go back to, you, you said you were a, a Calvinist for 10 years. What was that process like of coming out, um, of that? I mean, what, was there a stirring? Like what, what provoked that? Well, it's a kind of a long story, but, um, I was I was a Calvinist throughout my entire twenty all my twenties. Uh, I come to I came to become a Calvinist around the age of nineteen, my freshman year of of college. I was given a book by John MacArthur, introduced me to the, the doctrines of Calvinism and those kinds of things. Uh, quickly became a fan of R.C. Sproul and Lingener Ministries, and later John Piper. Uh, Louis Giglio was a good friend of my father's, and uh, he was the one who really brought John Piper into the mainstream. And uh, so I was kind of surrounded by uh, Vody Bauckham was a friend of my dad's as well and was a part of our ministry. Um, I mean, I, I loved being a part of this, you know, heritage of, you know, Charles Spurgeon type preachers, you know, Calvinists. And so I, I, I really loved being a Calvinist and I really thought we were on the right side of uh, theological history and of biblical exegesis. And, and I never would have dreamed during those years that I would have uh, not only come out of Calvinism, but actually uh, advocated against it uh, in, in, a, in, the, in the way that I do today. But, um, but I, you know, I have to be true to the word of God. And, and I really was convicted by reading the scriptures and uh, arguments against Calvinists and, and other things that just begin to kind of not set right with me. Um, when I learned, for example, that A.W. Tozer, somebody I really respected and had read a lot of his books, I thought he was a Calvinist while I, when I was a Calvinist because John Piper quoted from him in almost every book that John Piper ever writes. He quotes from Tozer, it seems. And, and I found out that Tozer actually spoke out against Calvinism, as does C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis. Both of these guys were were kind of uh, giants, spiritual giants for me. Um, and and when I found out that both of them actually spoke out against Calvinistic doctrine, it really made me. It didn't. It made it didn't make me leave Calvinism just because I found out they didn't believe it. It just made me go, why? <laughs> you know what? Sure. They're smart and they're biblical, um, and they're and they're not namby pamby. You know, easy believism guys. I mean, you're you know they're they're serious scholars. They're they're they do apologetics. They they're good pastors. They're calling people to holiness and to deep thinking. Uh, how in the world are they not Calvinists? Because in my little kind of microcosm world, in my world, I'd kind of set up that the, the non-Calvinists were just the surface level, kind of a Joel Olstein type of a feel to them, you know, oh. maybe a Rick Warren even kind of a, you know, a, uh, we, we want to be seeker sensitive. We want to build mm. a big church and we really want to keep it simple for the the, the layman and for seekers. Um, they mean well, you know, we're there are brothers, but you know, they're just not real deep thinkers like R.C. Sproul. I mean, they're not they're not the exegetes like John MacArthur and John Piper. And so I, I, I kind of had this kind of a almost a patronizing feeling towards Arminians or Wesleyans or non-Calvinists just in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the Baptist world that I grew up in, they weren't really Wesleyans or Arminians. They just weren't anything. They just didn't really have a position. They just were whosoever will kind of uh, Christians and really didn't have a, a doctrine of predestination or election at all. They didn't really think about it or talk about it as far as I could tell. Um, and so I just kind of ta- I just kind of talked about with my Calvinistic buddies, you know, we would kind of talk with a patronizing tone about all of the non-Calvinists in the world. Mm. And then when I was confronted with 
robust, deep thinkers who weren't Calvinist, it really kind of rocked my world to begin to think that these people are thinkers. They've actually considered Calvinism and they've rejected it. Why would they do that? And, and I begin to study some of their writings and begin to study some of their arguments. And back in high school, I was uh, in debate. And one of the skills that they forced us to learn to do was to, uh, to, to take both sides of an issue on. And so you had to be, a, be able to debate both the positive, uh, affirmative, and the negative in, in any topic that was given to us before you went to state. You had to be immediately, because you, you might even show up and not even know if you were debating for the negative or for the affirmative side of the coin. It, it was given to you on the spot, and you had to be ready to go. Mm. And and so I had never really vetted the Armenian side, and that's the only, in my mind, that's the only other side there was. It's either you're a Calvinist or you're Armenian. I had right. no other concepts except those two worldviews. Mm -hmm. And I thought so badly of Armenians um, in, in general that I, my bias was so, so, so wrong. But at the same time, it, it's just the way I thought of all Armenians. And so I started reading Arminius himself, and I, I began to begin, I began to get, I was impressed by Arminius because he was a very deep thinker as well. And he actually sounded a lot like Calvinist. I mean, he sounded very, very in depth and very spiritual and very exegetical and very high on the sovereignty and the glory and the goodness of God and all these kinds of things, very exegetical and all those uh, things that I was really attracted to by, uh, you know, modern day Calvinists. And so it, it began to kind of just lower my, my false expectations or my false beliefs about the other side to be open enough to at least hear them out and to really understand the best of the best scholars, because all I knew of Arminians is what the Calvinists had told me. And I began to really learn how wrong they were about our Armenian counterparts, uh, that they they had really caricatured them. They, had, they were treating all Armenians as if they were like a Joel Osteen type of Armenian. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they weren't dealing with or engaging with the best scholars from the other side. And, and that really, I, I began to get a distaste in my mouth for Calvinists treating the other side that way, even though I was still a Calvinist at the time. It just made me it made me a little bit upset that they weren't giving them a full hearing and really understanding them. And so as I began to study more and more the other side, I'd run into arguments that I didn't know how to answer as a Calvinist. But I thought to myself, well, I'm just a nobody. I'm just a little old Leighton Flowers. I don't even I've got my master's degree, but I didn't have my doctorate at that time. I haven't really studied these things that much. I wouldn't know how to answer that objection. But I bet R.C. Sproul would know how to answer that objection. Mm. Uh, MacArthur could answer that objection. And so that would kind of placate my um, disillusionments, so to speak, to, to where, like, I, I don't know the answer, but I'll let, I'll let R.C. Sproul be my Berean. Sure. You know, I'll let him, you know, figure out the answers. But it, it really wasn't until I began to get pressed on these issues and begin to look up the answers from Sproul and Piper and others that I began to become even more disillusioned with Calvinism because I really thought their answers fell short and, and would oftentimes they would appeal to, I, I think proof texting, like, who are you old man to question God? When a Arminian was asking a question about uh, how God is just to judge people for something they have no control over and these kinds of things, who are you old man to question God would, would often be the retort. But when I, when I begin to study Romans nine in context, 
I realized that's not the interlocutor in the mind of Paul. He's not answering an Armenian objecting to reprobation and double predestination. He's answering a Jew who's been hardened in his rebellion. Um, and so w- once I understood that, then I began to realize that that answer does not answer the objection that the Armenian is bringing. And, and unless you can answer that objection in a rational, reasonable way, um, you have a, a really, really difficult pill to swallow uh, with reprobation and double predestination. Mm. And, and it's not something that you can just gloss over uh, or, or just kind of placate people with, you know, by quoting a, a verse out of context. And so uh, and a lot more could be said. And obviously I'm, I'm already rambling, but there, <laughs> there's so many points along the way that just begin to kind of tear away at the wall of Calvinism for me to eventually where I, I had to abandon the system altogether. Now, would you say that you went to Armenianism out of Calvinism? It sounds like it, 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 in a sense, sort of found favor a little bit with you, or or are you just making the statement that they were not being fairly uh, represented, and, and so that was your uh, objection? Yeah, just like Calvinists are not monolithic, neither are Arminians. I mean, not everybody uh, on the Arminian side of the aisle is exactly alike. There, mm-hmm. there are some who, for example, believe in uh, perseverance or eternal security, and others believe that you can actually lose your salvation. Right. Some even believe you can, you know, sin out of salvation. In other words, you can sin so much that eventually you'll lose it from sinning. And some say, no, no, apostasy is that you have to willfully rebel, and that would be losing salvation. And, and others actually affirm a form of eternal security like most Southern Baptists do. And so there's different kinds of Armenians on that point. And there's different kinds of Armenians with regard to the doctrine of prevenient grace. Wesleyan's version of prevenient grace, for, for example, is very different than that of of uh, Arminius's version of prevenient grace. And so there's there's a wide range of different kinds of Arminians. And, and I understand some people refer to me as an Arminian, and I, I don't get all that upset at them when they mm-hmm. do so, because I understand their meaning behind it. But as a Southern Baptist, many of us don't like being called Arminians because that's usually associated with Methodists. And, mm-hmm. and so Southern Baptists uh, are, are, are usually independent and unique, especially those of us in Texas, and don't like labels all that much. And so um, Arminians, our Arminianism didn't really fit a lot of what we held to with regard to the concept of eternal security, um, at least my brand of provisionism, rejecting um, the, the concept of total moral inability that we're born unable to respond positively even to God's call to be reconciled. The, these, these concepts are these presuppositions that oftentimes uh, are brought to the text, at least in, 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 from our perspective. And so Armenians uh, do typically, at least Jacob is Arminius and, and many Armenians, classical Armenians, would disagree with some some tenets of what we as provisionists typically teach and hold. Okay. Uh, and now throughout this process, was this something that you were kind of going at alone or, or were you were, were you in community as you were wrestling with with a lot of this? Yeah, I had online uh, community. I had also friends that eventually I kind of came out to, um, you know, that so to speak, you know, kind of came out to saying, hey, I'm not a Calvinist anymore to some of my Calvinistic buddies, mm-hmm. which, you know, was a little rocky. I mean, they're friends still. And obviously we we had a lot of debates back and forth and pushing each other back and forth on those issues. Um, but uh, we were still friends today. We still get along just fine. Um, but uh, it was online. A lot of the online uh, community that I had, we had, in fact, it was uh, Derek Webb's uh, board. Um, Derek Webb, if those that don't know him, is the, was the leading was the lead uh, singer for Cademan's Call, um, 
and uh, he had a, a kind of a debate board or a web page for debating theological concepts and stuff. And he was a strong five point Calvinist who wrote a lot of songs supporting Calvinism. He has now left the faith altogether and have become an atheist. And we've actually played clips from uh, him leaving the faith. And one of the reasons he, he even cites for leaving the faith is that he, he this even one of the lyrics in the song says, this may all be real, but I'm not chosen. In other words, he's kind of kind of the conclusion. God may not have elected me. Um, and that's the reason he doesn't have faith that has endured. And so um, uh, it, it's that that page that I was debating on uh, was kind of my place to vet some of these ideas or kind of throw out some of these concepts and, and back and forth. And so there was a group of about 10, 15 of us there online that would kind of wrestle with these things and, and push each other. And so while I was on that page, I kind of morphed from being a kind of a staunch Calvinist with my other buddies from real life, kind of, you know, fighting the Arminians to eventually moving over to become uh, more of where I am today over the course of, you know, three to five years of kind of online uh, discussions. Okay. So, so why, uh, why prev- provisionism over is it is it like right in the middle in between it's kind of the best of both worlds or or i guess how might you uh articulate that sure yeah obviously we you know we would like to call it the best of both worlds because we believe it's true but i'm sure an arminian or a calvinist would disagree with that but um it's simply kind of focusing on the provision of god um, obviously, the word provide is the root of this this concept. And I wasn't really setting out to to you know form another ism when i when I started talking about God provides because it really is just about the provision of God. and we we believe God provides for everyone. No one goes to hell because a lack of God of God's provision or love or his desire for them. and and that's that's the main heart of Calvinistic theology is that the reason people end up in hell is because, before they were ever born, God didn't pick them. God didn't want them. Um, and they were born without the ability to believe truth. I, I don't. I can't think of a better excuse in the world than going to hell yeah. for, for unbelief and going to hell. Then I was born destined for hell by my God and created unable to believe the gospel. Uh, and I don't find that anywhere in scripture. There's not even a hint of that kind of concept in scripture as far as I can tell. Not not when you properly exegete the, the proof texts that are often used for Calvinism, at least in my estimation. But like I said, there's some presumptions from the Arminian perspective. You got to remember, Arminius was a student of Geneva. He was a from Calvin's school. And so the, there's a westernized way of thinking that oftentimes doesn't take, for example, in more of a corporate uh, perspective of the way in which the scriptures spoke in the first century. Um, It it oftentimes westernized people often think of the individual first versus the the group first, and that can lead to some misinterpretations. Um, There's also some, I think, just some presuppositions. For example, as we've already discussed, the presupposition that total inability must be true, um, that this concept that we're just born God-haters that can't receive even God's appeal to be reconciled from our enmity with him. Um, that, that concept is sometimes just adopted instead of defended, instead of established. Um, and, 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 it's, and it's kind of almost a pious kind of a, a competition to make man out to be as bad as he possibly can be. Because so much of the world is trying to, you know, um, build up man as if, you know, humanistically men are just, you know, the best of 
of everything. And, the, and, and men are just great people and basically good. And so Calvinists have kind of a pendulum swing away from the materialistic, worldly, humanitarian humanism of the world into this men are worms. They're worthless. They're just absolutely. And it's almost like there's a competition among Westerners about how bad we can make men out really to be because you you humanists over there are trying to make men out to be just these gods that are perfect. And we're saying, no, men are worms. We're worthless. And I, and I think any doctrine can be taken so far uh, to see, to make it to where you, you remove really the Imago Dei, that we are created as the image bearers of God. We're created uh, with dominion over this earth that God has we're the crown of God's creation. We we are we have worth because of who God is and because of who created us. And he created us in his image. He created us as, as ability, people with the ability to know good from evil so that we might reach out our hand, he even says in Genesis 3.22, and take from the tree of life and live for eternity. That, that sounds like taking, reaching out your hand, it even says. Sounds very much like that's our responsibility mm. to reach out our hand, to take of the tree of life and so that we may live. Um, and so you, you, I think the Arminians tended to just kind of adopt that presupposition of total moral inability and the way that they, they, I guess, deal with that problem is they introduce this concept of prevenient grace where, um, like Roger Olson, a a well-known, uh, modern day Arminian calls this kind of a, a partial regeneration. Like we're, we're made alive partially in order to give us back the ability to respond to God again. And that just seems to be a lot of theological baggage to me because there's nothing I can find in scripture, which even seems to suggest that humanity because of the fall lost their capacity right. to respond willingly to God's call to reconciliation. Is that, is um, that like so the- I, I just, I just call for Arminians and Calvinists establish your, your presupposition. Don't just assume it. Right. And, and, right. and I'm pushing Calvinists and Arminians to do that. Is that the same? Is that that sounds like a similar concept to the the uh, election precedes faith or or regeneration? Regeneration, regeneration. yeah, yeah. That that is that. So is that the same concept then? Is that the preventing yes, because we're because we're quote unquote spiritually dead in our sins and trespasses? The Calvinist logic is that well, dead men can't respond positively or negatively. They can't respond. At all, really, yeah. if you're taking it that literally. Uh, now, the way the Calvinists will say, it, well, you can respond, but you can only respond negatively because of your depraved condition, your dead-like, corpse-like condition. So the only way you can respond positively is if God makes you alive first. So you have to be given life in order to believe. Now, logically, I understand where they're coming from because what, what they've done there, I think they've uh, misapplied a idiom of the first century to say that deadness means inability. Yeah. And therefore what you need is life in order to, to, to believe. But the Bible says just the opposite, not just once or twice, but over and over and over again, that this is not a, a hard to find obscure doctrine. Jesus says to the Pharisees in John five forty, uh, you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. So how, what is the dead lifeless Pharisee need to do? They need to come to Jesus so as to have life. He doesn't say, I've refused to give you life so that you would certainly come to me. No, he, his order is very simple. Come to me so that you may have life. Uh, John 20, 31 says, these things were written, speaking of the gospel, these things were written so that you might believe and that by believing you might have life. Life always comes after faith in the scriptures. 
Um, Ezekiel chapter 18, why will you die, O house of Israel? I don't desire the perishing of anyone. Repent and live. Repentance always precedes. Faith and repentance precedes the new life. So yeah, we agree. Calvinists, yeah, we're dead, which means we're separated from God due to our rebellion. That's what the prodigal son was dead. He was lost, but now he's found, it says. He was dead, but now he's alive. Why was why was he called dead? He was still moving and working in the right. pigsty and doing all these things. He wasn't literally dead. He was separated from his father in rebellion. So what did he need to do? He needed to draw near. He needed to reconcile so as to be made alive. Same with us. We're dead. Yes, yeah, spiritually dead meaning separated from God, we're cast out of the garden. So how do we get reconciled? By drawing near to him through faith and repentance. And so we, we agree with Calvinists. Yes, we're dead. Yes, we're dead. But that's why he sent a life-giving truth. And if you suppress the truth, you'll remain dead. Mm-hmm. If you accept the truth, then you'll be made alive by his grace. And he doesn't have to make you alive, just like he didn't have to receive the son when he came over the pigsty. He chooses to do so graciously because he's a good God. Um, and so. It's understanding these concepts that sometimes Calvinists just take idioms too far and read more into the text than what it really means. Yeah, uh, I, I think of Revelation chapter three when he says to the church in Sardis, "You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and remove, renew what remains." That same word "dead" there, I believe it's "necros" uh, in the original language. It's the same word that's used in Ephesians two. Uh, when talking about you were once dead in your sins and trespasses, does that literally mean that the church in Sardis couldn't uh, uh, heed the warning of Christ and renew what remains? Because after all, they were dead, weren't they? Well, I've read Calvinist commentaries on Revelation chapter three, and not a single one of them takes dead there to mean moral inability to respond to the to the to the uh, warnings of Christ. Mm. So you can't just assume that the word necros or dead equals this inability to respond to God's life-giving truth. Um, Calvinists will harp on, well, we're enemies of God, though, Leighton. We're enemies. Okay. I know a lot of people who are enemies with each other who eventually come to reconciliation, even in the pagan world. Mm, Uh, My my wife is a marriage counselor, and I I have seen uh, families whose husband and wife in the family hate each other with an enmity and a hatred. And over time, through counseling, they come to a place of reconciliation. Usually, when one or both of them humble themselves, confess their wrongdoing, and come into right relationship with each other. In other words, just calling some somebody an enemy, has, there's nothing about the word enemy that even connotes the concept and idea that you're thus therefore unable to be reconciled with the one you're at enmity with. Then they'll say, well, well, Leighton, but we're not only enemies, we're enslaved to sin. Uh, okay. I agree. We're enslaved to sin. But what about being enslaved to sin makes you believe that we can't confess that we're enslaved to sin when confronted by the law and the gospel? Right. There's nothing about the word enslavement that even suggests that. It means that I can't stop sinning. We all agree with that. Nobody Nobody can stop sinning on their own. We all agree with that. So does that mean I can't confess that I can't stop sinning and trust in the one who's offering to save me? Mm-hmm. Of course not. It's just this, it's, it's just kind of these have, they're, they're kind of the Calvinistic blinders on, these lenses on, and they see the word enmity and they think inability. They see the word slavery, they think inability. They see the word dead, they think inability. And none of those words in the scripture ever is taught to mean that. And so we're just pushing back on Calvinists and saying, again, same vocabulary, different dictionary. 
We think, yes, men are at enmity with God, but that's why he sends a message calling us for reconciliation. We believe men are enslaved. That's why he sends the truth that sets men free. Mm. Yes, we believe that men are dead. That's why he sends life-giving truth calling us to life and to the gospel of Jesus Christ that that we may all live and have freedom uh, in him. And so, yes, the gospel is the solution. The gospel is a sufficient solution. And it's sent to the world, to every creature. So why would you assume that the gospel isn't sufficient to do what the Bible says it's meant to do, which is to call enemies to reconciliation, to call the slave to be set free, to call those who are dead to life? I, 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 th- this is, I get passionate about this because I see so many Calvinists falling into the ditch of fatalism and determinism because they are not understanding, I think, the, the, the vocabulary of Scripture calling us to faith and repentance and recognizing that the gospel call is for everyone legitimately and anyone and everyone can be saved. Well, and yep. it, it seems so wildly inconsistent and a kind of a point that, that you made a, a little bit ago is just that, you know, you have this couple that, that are at enmity that hate one another um, and can recognize, hey, what I'm doing is not Right, and they can humble themselves and and yeah. move move forward together. So why why can all of those things happen, or why can we do things that that you know on a the the yeah. horizontal level are good, you know, in in terms of humanity, right. um, but not recognize there is a life giver that that there is a God yeah. that that we are called to serve. So it, it does seem wildly yeah. inconsistent. Yeah, I think- yeah, it's. It's, it's, it's crazy to think that I can, I can humble myself. I can humble myself as a husband or as a father and recognize my wrongdoing in order to reconcile myself with my child or my wife, but I can't do that with my God. Why can't I do that with my God? Because God decreed in eternity past that I would be born unable to do that with God. He, he decreed you can do that with any other person in humanity, any other being. You can reconcile with anybody else except for with me, unless I picked you unilaterally before you were born and irresistibly effectually cause you to want to do that. When you really begin to think about the claims of the system, you begin to, it's just baffling that people would just adopt this worldview. And when you really yeah. lay it out that simply, and this is one of the reasons that I'm, I'm accused of misrepresenting Calvinism when I say things like that, the truth of the matter is, I think I'm just so clearly stating the claims of Calvinism with the proper definitions behind each of the terms, that when people hear it outright, that simply, they even recognize intuitively within themselves how ridiculous it is. And they say to themselves, oh, you must be misrepresenting it because it can't be that silly. It can't be that asinine. But test me. Try me out here. Mm-hmm. Examine the scholars from your system. Examine the determinism of the tulip systematic and tell me that's not actually what's happening You're born by divine decree, unable to respond willingly to the call of the gospel to be reconciled. And yet you're going to spend eternity in hell for something you have absolutely no control over. You were born a reprobate destined for hell, and you had absolutely nothing to do with the fact that you're born that way. That's to me removes the blameworthiness of the unbeliever. And it ultimately brings question and doubt to the character and the goodness of our God. And that's why I do what I'm doing. It's just not a biblical doctrine, and it flies in the face of the character and the goodness of God revealed in Scripture. Okay, so how 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 do you answer someone that says, well, but Leighton, what about the, the Scripture that talks about, well, before the foundations of the world, I, I knew you, and I, you know, all of those, and predestined you, and all that. How do you answer someone that, that raises that? 
Sure. We, we'd have to go to the, each individual text. Okay. Um, for example, Ephesians 1 is a big text that's obviously used uh, with regard to the before the foundation of the world uh, kind of concept that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. And so you have to ask questions like, who is he choosing? Well, he's choosing us. Well, who's the us in Ephesians chapter one? We'll back up and start from the beginning. He says, I'm writing to you, the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. So he's talking to people who have faith in Jesus. So the us in him is referring to those who have faith in Christ. You have been sealed in Christ through faith, right? So you are now you are now located in Christ. He has chosen us who are in Christ he has chosen for us who are in Christ to become what? Holy and blameless. Okay? That's sanctification. Mm-hmm. So anybody who's in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, God, from the very beginning, from the very beginning, has always had this as a plan. He's always had his purpose. That whoever whoever's in Christ through faith will be made holy and blameless, will be conformed to the image of his son, as he says in chapter 8 of Romans. And so God, before the foundation of the world, has decided, regardless of what nation you're from, regardless of your gender, regardless of the good or bad you end up doing, if you put your faith in Christ, you will become holy and blameless. You will be conformed to the image of Christ. That is what God has destined for those who are in Christ Jesus. You, your responsibility is to humble yourself and put your faith in Christ, which chapter in chapter 1 of Ephesians, that's what verse 13 goes on to say. Um, that he he says that it's it's those who believe who are marked in him. When you heard the gospel, you believed and were marked in him. Not that you were marked in him before the foundation of the world for right, no apparent right. reason or indiscriminately or unconditionally. No, you heard the message of truth, you believed, and you're sealed in him. Uh, and that's when you receive the benefits of what he's destined beforehand. A good analogy I've used that I think helps with this kind of concept is to see as a plane, a plane can be predestined or predetermined by the airlines to fly from Dallas to Chicago tomorrow at noon. But it's your responsibility as to whether you get on that plane, right? And so I can say that, yes, anyone and everyone is who's on that plane is destined to fly from Dallas to Chicago. The, the airlines made that determination before the flight, before the person, anybody got on that plane. But it's still the individual's responsibility to get on the flight. And so, too, I think that's the way biblical predestination works, is that God is destined beforehand. Anyone who's in Christ will have these spiritual blessings and will be ultimately sanctified, glorified, and redeemed. I like that analogy, actually, Layton, because I think in that analogy, if the Calvinist was consistent, they'd have to go, well, yeah, that's true, but the individual's unable to get on the plane. I mean, that would be their their argument. Well, they're not only, not only they would, they would, what they would say, no, they're, they're able to get on the plane. They're just not willing to get on the plane is okay. what they would say. Yeah. That's so a, seems what like you a, would, that, because that's why they call it a moral inability, not a physical inability. So you have, everyone has the physical ability to go get on the plane. They're just going to hate the plane. They're just going to be repulsed by the plane and they're going to be enslaved to being off the plane. In other words, they're so enslaved to the ground that they would never want to get on a plane unless God picked them before they were born. The airlines picked them before they were born and somehow gives them a a potion or a pill or something to make them want to fly on their plane. Um, And and so this is kind of the concept that you're born 
not only unable, like in a physical sense, to get on the plane, but you're born with such a hatred for the airplane, you would never want to get on it unless God changed your very ontological makeup to make you want to get on mm. it. And again, I, I understand the concept. It's just not a biblical concept as far as I can tell. Right. No, I agree with you because it's it's the kind of thing they have to read into the text to make their systematic uh, make yeah. sense. Okay, so so how is when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and say the the and I, I know I'm going to butcher this a little bit, but the, the you don't come to me because you're not my sheep, or you don't hear my voice because you're not my sheep. Is that is he is that an observation over a declaration, or or how I guess how do we reconcile that? Yeah, um, you got to remember during the time that Jesus was on Earth, there were people who were God fearing people who had listened and learned from the Father. They believed and followed the father, like Simeon, for example. Mm -hmm. He was a God-fearing man. Uh, Cornelius, a God-fearing man who genuinely believed in the father, but he had no idea who the son was yet. He didn't know Jesus. Um, and what Jesus continually does throughout the book of John is remind people, I and the father are one. If you believe Moses' words, you would believe me because he spoke about me. Um, I don't say anything that the father doesn't tell me to say because he and I are one. We speak the same voice. And so if you, if you hear my voice and you reject it, it's because you have not listened and learned from the Father. And so to call somebody a sheep in the Calvinist mind means, oh, he's saying that you don't believe because you're not my sheep. That means for a Calvinist, you don't believe in me because you're not one of the elect. Right. You're not one of the pre-chosen ones. And the way a provisionist understands that is like, no, no, no. You don't believe in me, Jesus, the son, because you're not a follower, a sheep of the Father. So. The sheep is is a connotation for follower. Um, that's what the first century would have thought of a sheep. They would have automatically thought, well, sheep are followers. They just blindly follow their their shepherd, their leader. And what Jesus is saying, if if you recognize God's voice because you listen and learn from the Father, you would recognize the Son's voice because we speak the same thing. We have the same voice. Sheep recognize the voice of their shepherd. And since the Father and I sound exactly the same, the reason you don't follow me, the shepherd, the son, is because you're not a sheep of the father. You haven't listened and learned from the father. And so he's not saying you, you can't believe in me because I didn't choose you. You can't believe in me because I don't want you. That flies in the face of Jesus weeping over them and his, his holding out his hands to them all day long and all the verses that talk about his desiring for them to come, but they were unwilling right. and longing to gather them like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But I mean, it just flies in, flies in the face of so much revelation of scripture to interpret uh, John 10 to mean that, that, that the reason that the audience can't believe is because God doesn't really want them or hasn't su provided sufficient grace for them, or Jesus didn't really come to die for their sins or something of that nature, which is exactly the conclusion you'd have to come to if the Calvinistic reading is the correct reading of that text. And it's so much simpler in my mind to understand sheep as follower than to understand sheep as unconditionally chosen people before the foundation of the world, right. which is what is packed in that one word, sheep from the Calvinistic perspective. And they're, and they're not getting it from John chapter 10. They're pulling that in from their misreading of Romans 9 and their misreading of Ephesians 1 and their misreading of John 6. And they're pulling that concept in, packing it into their five-point system, and they're reading unconditionally chosen people into the word sheep. And that's simply not what Jesus was talking about. What seems like a, a maybe, uh, well, certainly an inconsistency or an overapplication to sheep in that, like Joseph's dad came to faith at 65. So now he's a sheep. But before that, 
Yeah. So, what, he, well, he wasn't a sheep because he wasn't following, yeah. but he couldn't change, so he was a sheep, so he was elect. So ah. my sheep means could never transform. My two objections to the, the whole sheep, the way the Calvinists define sheep, my two objections are, are that. My example is my dad got saved when he was in his 60s. But according to Calvinists, he was always a sheep, so why was he not hearing the voice prior? We were giving him the scriptures. We were praying for him. Right. The, uh, the answer we got last night, I, it wasn't satisfying to me, but it, he, what was it? Like he can reject it at certain points. He was hearing the voice, but rejecting it. But that's not what scripture says. Jesus says, if you're a sheep, you'll hear my voice. So that's inconsistent with the Calvinistic definition of sheep. Right. Yes. With that then, definition. My other objection, Layton, I want to run this by you because if it's a terrible argument, I'll stop using it. But if you're always a sheep, if you just were always born a sheep because you're, you're elect, this is predetermined, then salvation doesn't make sense to me in that scenario because I don't know what you're saved from. You were never going to hell to begin with. Is that a terrible argument? Well, I mean, I understand what you're saying, um, but what, the way a Calvinist would reply is to say prior to being regenerated, that is the condition you're in. You're in, under wrath. You're um, at enmity with God. You're walking in unrighteousness following the desires of your flesh and the sinfulness of your heart. It's only at the time of regeneration. And for your your father, that was at the age of 60 versus, you know, the age of seven for me, for example. And so and everybody's regenerated at a different time based upon the sovereignty of God and his choice as to when he's going to redeem somebody, a Calvinist would say. And so that's how they would, you know, explain that. And so they would say that God in his, his own wisdom uh, in his own ways, has has decided when a person, not only who will believe, but when they will believe. And he does so through the, the means of regeneration or irresistible grace or effectual calling, sometimes they'll refer to it as. So but so prior to your father being effectually called or regenerated, he, he would have still been seen at, in the father's eyes as one of the elect or the sheep. Right. But as in the eyes of the world, from the human perspective, he would still be under condemnation and and without a regenerate spirit and thus unable to to respond positively to the proffers of the gospel uh, prior to that point. Yeah. No, you used to be a Calvinist for sure, because that's that's pretty much the answer we got. So, <laughs> yeah. Um. Oh, I was going to think what else I, I wanted to go back to something. Um, uh, oh, well, I, I mean, I got a couple of verses, uh, I guess, I'd, you know, that John 6, 44, that no, no one can come to the Father except, or unless the Father draws him. How, how do we reconcile reconcile that? Yeah. I mean, is that a proof text? Yeah, there, that's, an off, that's often used as a proof text right. to, to prove, uh, for the Calvinists, that oftentimes they try to make it to prove irresistible grace. Okay. Um, that the drawing is a work of regeneration, that no one ultimately can believe uh, in the sun, unless they've been regenerated first, um, is basically the way that they're interpreting that text. But that's packing a lot uh, into that word helco, the word draw there, because the word helco is used elsewhere. Uh, for example, in, in uh, Romans chapter uh, 12, verse 32, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Uh, there, it's also used in the uh, the Septuagint in Nehemiah 9.30, when he talks about drawing uh, people who resist him and uh, end up going another way. And so the concept of of Helco, in my estimation, uh, doesn't always mean to uh, effectually grace or effectually regenerate somebody to that to that extent. 
But but that's not the only way in which non-Calvinists understand that verse. I think understanding contextually is also important because it goes on to say that um, basically that, that those who uh, do uh, come to the Son are those who listen and learn from the Father, just like we were already talking about with the sheep. It's those who listen and learn to the Father that the Father would give to the Son. So it's not just this unconditional drawing of the Father, just anybody willy-nilly, almost in a sense, almost like an arbitrary kind of a any, many, mighty, mo. I'm going to choose you, 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 and draw you to the Son and nobody else. He's talking contextually. Um, those he's going to give to the Son are those who have listened and learned from the Father. And those are the, those are the ones he would draw to the Son. So in, if, if you understand it that way, there's not a lot of debate over the effectuality of the drawing there because it, it makes sense that Cornelius, for example, would be drawn by the Father to the Son because Cornelius was a God-fearing man. Uh, Psalm 25 says that he reveals his covenant to those who fear the Lord. Uh, he he, he sh- reveals secrets to those who love him and follow him. And so he, he's not just arbitrarily picking out people and drawing them to the sun as if there's you no know, stated reason in the Bible as to why he would draw one person and not another. The Bible tells us why he would give somebody to the sun. Um, he, he, Acts chapter 10 tells us exactly why why the father is giving Cornelius to the son. Um, And so the concept of drawing, you can't just assume that it's effectual one. And you also can't assume that it's um, that it's uh, an arbitrary or unconditional choice to draw certain preselected people, because neither one of those things is necessarily true. Uh, He goes on to say in verse 65, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it's been granted. Uh, The word granted doesn't mean to effectually cause. It means to grant. Right. Uh, over in Acts, it says, he, we praise the Lord because he's granted even the Gentiles to come to faith. Does that mean every Gentile is going to come to faith? No. What, what's it mean? The gospel has come not only to the Jew, but now it's come to the Gentile, thus granting them, giving them the ability to respond so as to be saved. And so um, the concept of enabling or granting, uh, drawing, uh, seems to me to be enabling or bringing the ability to somebody uh, to do something because they could not do it on their own. They needed something. And according to Romans chapter 10, how will they believe in somebody they haven't heard? How will they respond in faith if they haven't been invited to respond in faith? How will right. they attend a party they don't know about? You can't yeah. go to the wedding banquet unless you have an invitation, right. as right. the Matthew 22 parable says. And so you need to be enabled. You need to be invited. And only God can do that. And only God can bring the drawing um, and it, it's definitely a necessary condition to come, but it doesn't mean it's an effectual uh, condition that's only given to some people and withheld from everyone else, as the Calvinistic rendering would imply. Yeah, because <clears throat> I think I know. I remember what I was going to go back to late, probably like thirty minutes ago now. But uh, going back to provisionism, I mean that he provided a means. Um, John chapter three so talks about. Moses, uh, right, the Son of Man be lifted up, just like Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. I mean, isn't that not the perfect scenario of something was provided? Here's all you have to do is look up and believe. I guess how would right. the Calvinists object to that? Yeah, it's, it's a perfect example of provisional atonement, atonement that's provided for the whole the nation of Israel, the serpent lifted on the pole, provided for the whole nation of Israel, but it's not applied to everyone in Israel. It's only applied to those who look to the provision in faith. 
And so the invitation to the wedding banquet can go out to the highways and the byways to every single person, but it only benefits those who respond to the invitation in faith, coming clothed in the right wedding garments. So there is a condition to enter into the wedding banquet. Now, the condition isn't morality or nationality, because remember, the invitation went to the, the good and the bad alike outside of the nation of Israel. And so it's not based upon your nationality and it's not based upon your morality. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have any conditions. There is still a condition. You had to come in response to the invitation, clothed in the right wedding garments. That is a condition. What does that condition represent? Coming in response to the gospel in faith, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so what Calvinists have done is they've they've kind of, again, overplayed their case. They, they in a sense, are saying it's unconditional not only on the good or bad that you do, or your nationality, but it's also unconditioned upon faith because ultimately God is going to cause whether you have faith or not. And that's just not a biblical concept. It's just something I think they've exegetically read into it based upon a systematic and a deterministic philosophy introduced in, in the early fifth century by Augustine, who was a former Manichaean Gnostic. So did they, they because a Calvinist would would affirm that faith is granted and as is repentance God grants us God moves uh, sure. the heart of men do you where do you how do you reconcile that or or what is your uh, approach to that We just say we agree yeah he he grants faith and he grants repentance um which means he enables faith and repentance by bringing the means of faith and repentance um, but doesn't mean he effectually causes it for some people and withholds it from the rest. Okay. Um, it, it just a gift doesn't have to be effectually given for the giver to get full credit for giving gifts. Uh, I think God should get all the gifts for the gifts he gives to people who even abuse those gifts and, and don't use them for his glory. For example, Michael Jackson, uh, I, I mentioned Michael Jackson, but one, he's already passed on. And so I'm, I'm not talking about somebody that's living that I, I would, I would, you know, try to badmouth behind his back, but Michael Jackson recently has come up on my Facebook feed with back when he was just a little kid. The boy is obviously naturally talented. Mm -hmm. I mean, he could sing, he could dance. He was just had this vibrance about him. Nobody would argue. I think a Calvinist within the room wouldn't argue that obviously God gifted Michael Jackson with some talent, right? Mm -hmm. With singing and dancing. Okay. So here's the question. Did God give him that gift? Did God grant him that gift? Yes. Did he use that gift to glorify God? No. no. So whose fault's that? God's? Did right. God decree for Michael Jackson not to use the gifts that he gave him for the right purpose? Or does Michael Jackson have the freedom of the will to use the gifts that God's given him for his own glory and for his own fame or for the glory and the fame of God? And so th th this is exactly the same kind of concept. People say, well, faith is from God. Faith is a gift of God. Well, of course it is. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If not for the word of God, nobody could have faith. Nobody could understand or have concepts of deliberation or understanding without the creator, God, who created us with the ability to know right from wrong and the, the ability to read and have concepts and hear and know things. Of course, that's from God. That's a gift of God. But that doesn't mean he effectually causes some people to use that gift appropriately and the rest to be born unable to use that gift appropriately, right. that gives them the very excuse that Romans 1 takes away. Uh, you, you can't say that basically they're rejecting God because God first rejected them and God gave decreed for them to be born unable to use those gifts appropriately. No, you, you say, no, God should get all the, the glory for the gifts that he gives, but we should receive all the blame for when we reject those gifts or we suppress the truth. Um, and and, and I, think, I think when Calvinists are really 
kind of back out of their systematic and way of thinking, kind of take off the deterministic lenses, so to speak, and really understand what we're trying to argue here. We're not trying to bow at the altar of the almighty free will of man. Like we're just trying to lift up humanity to make them wonderful. And everybody should just look at how great humans are. No, we're actually saying unbelievers are more blameworthy than you think they are. Unbelievers should be blamed for rejecting the gospel because they could have accepted it. Right. Unbelievers right. should be blamed for and, 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 um, condemned for the rejection of the cross because the cross was for them and Christ wants them. That That's how horrible um, an unbeliever is, is that an unbeliever is rejecting a God who loves and provides for them. An unbeliever is not rejecting a God who doesn't want them or doesn't like them and didn't created them for destruction. No, they're, they're rejecting a God who does love them and has provided for them. That's how much worse they are than the Calvinist thinks that they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and God is so much more just on our worldview. Why? Because he's actually condemning people who had a choice in the matter. He's condemning people who could have done otherwise. He's not condemning people that were created ultimately to reject and hate him from birth. Um, And so we're we're actually doing just the opposite of oftentimes what Calvinists accuse us of doing, um, because we're trying to understand that mankind are really more guilty and more blameworthy than what the Calvinistic worldview entails. Okay, so how how might you respond to someone that says, "Well, Leighton, it sounds it sounds an awful lot like you're you're saying that man has the ability to to save themselves, you know, sort of pull themselves up by the bootstraps, and you know, you take part in your salvation." Yeah, th- this is a conflating of salvation, the the resp- the responsibility to save with the responsibility to, to repent of your sins, mm-hmm. so as to be saved. There's those are two separate choices. Uh, I use the prodigal son as an analogy for this, not because I think the analogy within Scripture is is meant to prove this point. It's just that the the analogy of the prodigal son is a good example of this. Mm-hmm. Um, did the prodigal son, when he came to his senses and decided to go home in humiliation to beg his daddy for a job, did he earn or merit in any way what he was about to get when he when he got home? Nope. Nope. No. Whose decision was it? to come out of his pigsty and return home. His. It was the son's. 100% the son's decision to humble himself and to return home. 100% his. Whose decision was it to restore him when he got there? Whose decision was it to give him the golden calf and to, um, yeah, the the fatted calf, sorry, the golden calf's different different story. Um, (laughs) To kill the fatted calf and to give him shoes and to give him a ring back on Mm -hmm. his finger and restore him as a son. Whose, whose decision was it to do that? 100% the father's decision. Right. So you got two separate decisions. It's like if, if you thought of pie charts, you know, you see pie charts and you see, you know, the percentages of pie charts. Well, this is 100% the choice of the father. And this is 100% the choice of the son. They're two separate pie charts. What the Calvinists have done is conflated the two pie charts and made it into one pie chart. Okay. And then they try to divide up the percentages and they say, oh, you Arminians, you provisionists, you non-Calvinists, you out there, what you're trying to do is try to get this pie chart and you're trying to give that one little slice of percentage to man. And you're trying to say man has a percentage of salvation, 1% salvation. So you've got this synergistic concept that God's not 100% uh, sovereign over salvation, but that man has a slice in the pie of salvation. And we're going, no. 
Man has no slice in the pie of salvation whatsoever because it's 100% God who provided the means of salvation, who provides the choice of who he's going to save. He doesn't have to provide atonement. He doesn't have to save those who humbly confess. He chooses to do so graciously. And so it is 100% God's responsibility and his choice to save. Only God can do that. But on the converse of that, sin is 100% your responsibility and your confession of it in light of the law and the gospel is 100% your responsibility. And that's what you have to understand. Those two pies are separate, mm-hmm. not conflated into one pie called yep. salvation. I, I've i got to tell you, I so appreciate the rec- how, in a sense, how you reconcile that, or, or at least you explain it. I mean, it is so, it's it's satisfying to my brain because I don't look <laughs> at God as as this, this God that was playing, you know, in a sense, sort of playing both sides of the chessboard, or or I'm casually determining you to, you, you have no choice in the matter, and yet I'm also going to blame you, and you're also uh, storing up for yourselves wrath because you're rejecting, but I'm not allowing you to come into uh, an understanding. It, it just seems so convoluted and, and I mean, yeah. mind-boggling. And so for you to reconcile that in a way to say, like, no, man is 100% responsible, which is exactly what the Scripture says. I mean, man chooses yeah. to reject the truth and it, for a lie. And, and we understand that truth. We see that in the world. Yeah. And so it, it, it just makes sense. So in my mind, it's refreshing. Yeah. So I appreciate it. Well, Lane, one of our, yeah. not one, Chris and I, we talk about Calvinism frequently on the podcast just because it seems like daily we're always finding inconsistencies that we just, I just don't like. And the analogy you just used is one of them where Calvinists accuse us of when you know when we say man has to make a choice we're, we're responsible for that choice they go oh well then that choice you're saying you're taking part in your salvation and that's inconsistent because a calvinist doesn't live that way none of us live that way where if i have a tumor and i'm i'm going to die i need a doctor to remove this thing so i go get the surgery they remove it they save my life i don't then go come out and go well i got saved because i chose to go to the hospital we don't we don't live that way right. we clearly recognize yeah. it was the surgery the doctor provided and did something miraculous. Um, anyways, one of the inconsistencies within that. So you were sort of talking about, you know, the father's choice, man's choice. Compatibilism tends to come up. Could you speak on that and, and why <laughs> compatibilism is really just determinism with an extra step? Mm-hmm. Well, what people don't seem to understand, some, some self-proclaimed Calv- Calvinists claim to be compatibilists uh, and and they try to deny that they're determinists because they say, no, no, I'm not a determinist. I'm a compatibilist. Well, the word compatibilist, if if you understand philosophy and you understand where these terms came from, the word compatibilist is saying that determinism is compatible with human free will. And so you can't say I'm a compatibilist and then deny determinism right. because then there's nothing to be compatible <laughs> anymore. And so some some Calvinists who try to say, well, I'm not a determinist. Don't try to, to hold me to determinism because I'm a compatibilist. They don't understand what the term means because compatibilism is saying that determinism is true and free will is true and, and they are compatible with one another. Now, some Calvinists don't try to reconcile those things. They just say that they're friends and they don't need to be reconciled as a square circle, but it's just A equals not A, but it's, it seems contradictory to us, but we just have to trust God that it's really not. 
Uh, you'll see MacArthur say things like this, for example. Right. Um, J.I. Packer calls it an, an antinomy. It's a seeming contradiction, but we know that God doesn't contradict himself. So it, it seems like a contradiction to us from our vantage point, but we just know that it's not, and we don't try to reconcile it. People like Piper uh, came along and say, no, you can't do that, because if you claim something as a contradiction, you've nullified it. And so what, what compatibilists who know what they're talking about, philosophically consistent Calvinists, will come along and say, the way we understand free will is not the way everybody's always understood free will all these years as libertarian freedom, the ability to do otherwise, the ability to, to, to make choices that are with based upon factors within the agent's control, this kind of source of libertarianism con concepts. No, free will is simply doing as one desires. In other words, you're acting in accordance with your desires. Um, and as long as you're acting in accordance with your desires, that's sufficient to call it free will. So you're not being forced to do something against your desires. You're acting in accordance with your desires. Now, the problem with that concept is that if you affirm determinism, then you're saying that ultimately your desires are also determined right, right. by divine decree. And so it, it's really just another step in the little logical concept to say, yes, determinism is true, but as long as you're desiring to do what you do, it's free, but ignoring the next step is that the reason you desire it is because you were determined to desire it. And thus, there's really nothing different uh, from just being a determinist right. than being a compatibilist, because there's no determinist, there's no fatalist out there who's not trying, who's, who's saying that people are making choices contrary to their desires. Of course, even, even fatalists believe you're making choices according to your desires. That doesn't make it uniquely different than a, a fatalist or a determinist, hard determinist. What makes it different is that it, it, it placates people to say, oh, well, it's free as long as you're doing what you desire to do. Well, okay, who cares if you desire to do it if somebody else is ultimately controlling your desires? It would be like if if I could, um, you know, if, if I had the ability to cast a spell on uh, Eli Ayala and had a potion, for example, that if he drank it, he would believe everything that I say is true. Um, and he so he drinks this potion unknowing uh, that this is what it would do. And it causes him just to start believing everything that I say is true. And he becomes a provisionist. In fact, not only a provisionist, but he starts believing every single thing that I say. Is anyone going to call that free will? Of course not. But he wants to do it. He desires to do it. Well, the reason he desires to do it is because ontologically I've changed his very nature by giving him a potion. So nobody would call that free will. Nobody in their right mind would even 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 suggest something like that was an example of free will in, by any rational or reasonable right. interpretation or definition of the term. But that's exactly what Calvinists have done with compatibilism, is they've ultimately said, yeah, uh, determinism is true. God's determining your desires, but you're free because those desires are really yours. And, and yeah, you're doing what you want to do. So that's free and you're responsible for it. And God determines what you want to do. And we're just going to appeal the mystery as to how that's reasonable. Yeah. And we're just going, that's not a <laughs> rational basis on which to call somebody responsible or accountable. So, well, oh, go, well the, to me, the danger too of, of compatibilism is, is they're trying to, the danger is, is it, it tends to paint a low view of God and almost as the author of evil in Calvinism and determinism. And so it seems like they're trying to say, no, 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 determinism is true, but he's not the author of evil because somehow you have free choice in there. I guess, uh, could you speak on that? What, what's your, do you agree? Does, does determinism tend to paint uh, a low, low view of God? 
Yeah, that, that is the, the main objection that philosophers who know what they're talking about, like William Lane Craig and others on the Arminian or non-Calvinistic side of the aisle, are bringing towards Calvinists, is that they have no sufficient basis on which not to uh, accuse God of evil. Um, in, in their well-intended effort to give God all the credit for salvation because of their conflation of what salvation is, like we already talked about with the two pies, um, their, their well-intended effort to give God all the credit for that. Um, they've also made God ultimately the cause of all evil um, by the implications of their system. And, and so the reason people reject Christ is basically under the same meticulous divine control as the same reason that people accept Christ, is that God decreed it in eternity past. Uh, and he decreed it by means of the inborn nature you're born with that hates God and would always reject him, or the reborn nature through regeneration that would always accept him. That's just determinism. And, and yet when you question that and you say, well, then why would God blame somebody for being a unbeliever if he created them to be unbelievers without the ability to do otherwise? And they will quote Romans 9 out of context at you. Who are you, O oh man, to question God? Does not the potter have the right to form out of the same lump of clay pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if he wanted to create some for destruction and wrath and others for mercy? And who are you to talk back to God, O oh man? And we go, okay, that sounds good. And if you applied that answer to our modern theological debate over uh, free will, it sounds like that's exactly the, the, the questioner. But read the context. That's right. not what Paul is addressing. Paul is talking to a Jew who has become calloused and hardened in his rebellion. He is cut off for his unbelief in his self-righteousness. And, and he is now being used by God to bring about redemption through his unbelief. And that is the interlocutor in the mind of Paul questioning. So when in the mind of Paul, the interlocutor is the same one that you see in Romans 3, by the way. If our unrighteousness, if our unrighteousness as Jews brings about your plan of redemption, then why are we still to be blamed for our sin? If our sin is what's bringing about your plan, if our crying out crucify him was actually a part of your divine plan, then why are you blaming us for crying out crucify him? Mm -hmm. And that's the answer that Paul is giving that you are rebellious by your choice and God is judicially, as an act of a judge, blinding you in your rebellion, just like he did Pharaoh to bring about the first Passover. He's now blinding the Jews to bring about the second Passover. So it's not, they're, they're not without blame here. They, these are people who have become self-righteous by a libertarian free choice, okay? They've become this way by choice and now God is sealing them or blinding them in their rebellion so as to bring about his plan of redemption. But here's what's beautiful about that. He still holds out hope for the hardened one's salvation because he says he hopes that his own ministry will provoke them to envy, that they too may see the error of their ways and repent so be as to be grafted back in and to be saved. So even in hardening the nation of Israel, his hope is to eventually provide the means of salvation and to provoke them into envy so that they too may see the error of their ways return and be grafted back in so as to be saved. So it's it's about a widening of God's grace and mercy, not about a narrowing of it to a select few from every nation. It's about a widening of his mercy to say this is not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. And not only not only that, but for you hardened Jews who looks like you're an enemy of God and coming against the Messiah, I still hold out hope for you because maybe you'll see through the redemption of the Gentiles, the error of your ways, and you will be grafted back in as well through faith. Amen. Mm. So, Leighton, do you, do you ever, I'm sure you hear this from the Calvinists then, 
because they object if if you re- if you reject that every single little thing is determined, then they say, well, if that's true, then everything is meaningless and purposeless. Do you push back against that? Yeah. There, whenever somebody, you know, molestation is one of the worst evils we can think of. So I'm not trying to be provocative, but yeah, oftentimes yeah. philosophers will will pick the very worst evil that we can think of. Molesting a child is one of the worst evils that we our, our brains can fathom. And most of us, especially as men, uh, who have children, especially daughters, yeah. the concept or idea of somebody molesting or, or hurting our, one of our children, we just, the wrath of man <laughs> comes up within us, yeah. this righteous indignation that we, we would want to, uh, you know, if, if not kill, castrate or something, this, this person, mm-hmm. we would just have this vitriolic hatred towards them. And the reason we use examples like that is we like, who is the author of that? Um, who, who is the one who, who does, who, who ultimately brings that to pass? Um, and of course, whenever that question comes up in debates, oftentimes it's 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 a kind of a, an emotional catch-all, and a lot of Calvinists don't like it because it's so emotional, and therefore they think the reason that the non-Calvinist is making that argument is just to be emotional and to get the audience on right. their side. And sometimes that may be the motive um, for for an argument, but it's not just that. It really has to do with the character and the goodness of God. And it really has to do with kind of shocking you out of your spiritual diadems to see where the rubber meets the road of your theological vantage point to say, are you really trying to say that the reason the molester molested that child was because God decreed in eternity past for that person to desire to do that? And they could not have refrained from doing that evil, heinous, moral, evil thing, even though the Bible says that he did not decree it in order to enter his mind in Jeremiah 9, 5. And 19.5 and other passages that say yep. God had uh, re- was repulsed by their burning their children to Malek and these horrible, evil, heinous things we're doing. Is that really where you want to c- come down on? And, and when people say, well, then it must be purposeless. It must be meaningless. Well, so no, it has, evil has a purpose. It's an evil purpose. That's how we know it's not God's purpose because it's an evil purpose. Does that mean God can't use it or redeem it? Obviously, right. that's not the case. God right. can redeem an evil of Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery and bring about good through it. Uh, God can redeem all things for those who love him and are called according to his purpose for good. But he doesn't have to cause something in order to redeem it. He can redeem that which we cause. So Satan can cause a destruction or, or a man can cause a, a moral evil. And God can redeem and restore that evil for good. But God doesn't have to be the the, the arsonist and the fireman to be sovereign. Um, and that's that sometimes seems like where Calvinists are going. And the only way God can really get the glory for being the fireman who rescues people from the fire is if somehow we prove that God is actually the one who set the fire in the first place. Why do you need that? You could have the purpose of allowing people to make free choices for the purpose of having real love and relationship that's worth having. That's the purpose of allowing for free will. And under that worldview of allowing for people to have free will, you're having fires that are set, bad things that happen. And God can step in, redeem as he sees fit and restore as he sees fit. But that doesn't mean he's the cause of or the decider of or the 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 purpose behind a individual moral evil act that's taking place within our world. Right. So And so Chris and I would agree with everything you just said, uh, but then the Calvinist is going to hear that and go, Okay, you want to talk about an evil act, right? The molestation of a child. Well, the most evil act ever done was the crucifixion of the only innocent man, Jesus Christ. Yet, that was predetermined. So how, how do we, 
there's a there's a di- distinction though, right? I mean, wh- why do we let him get away with that argument? Right. What the Calvinist is trying to say is if I can show you even one example of where God determines an evil action for his good purpose and he's not held guilty or culpable for that, then I've established the fact that he can do that with every evil act. Right. In other words, they're not trying to necessarily say that that proof that God has determined one thing is proof that he determines everything. What they're trying to say is this is an example of God determining an evil act, the crucifixion of his son, but he's still not culpable. Therefore, he establishes their case that God can determine things without being culpable for the things that he determines. The problem is, is that the reason that the people are held culpable for crucifying Christ is because they chose to do so freely, okay, libertarianly freely. In other words, their desires are not determined by a decree of God. They're held accountable for their desires and their motivations to do this evil act. And on our system, God knows those things and uses those things, but he doesn't have to be the determiner of those things. Omniscience is how God accomplishes his purpose because he knows the evil intentions of Judas and uses them for his good purpose. He knows the evil intentions of Pilate and uses them for his good purpose. On Calvinism, he sovereignly and unchangeably decreed the evil intentions and purposes of Judas and Pilate. And we don't think that that's, 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 that we think that's a step gone too far. Um, The analogy that I've used, example that I've used to debate this is like a, a police department if they set up a police sting where a cop goes undercover and becomes a part of the drug dealing ring of the community that's in the area because they know who the drug dealers are, but they have to be able to prove it. And so somebody goes undercover, they hide their identity. It's blinding them from the truth of who they really are as a police officer. And they help to work with the criminals to organize the selling of drugs on Thursday at one o'clock in the warehouse. Okay. So they they're working to bring that, evil event about for a good purpose. Why? To bring all the drug dealers together so that they can catch them and prove that they are all drug dealers so as to throw them into prison. In other words, they have a good motive. Stop the sale of drugs, right? That's their motivation for doing this. Well, suppose that somebody watched what the drug dealers were doing and watched what the cops were doing and then concluded, oh, see what happened there? That means that the cops are the ones who made all those criminals become criminals in the first place. Those cops are the ones who caused those drug dealers to become drug dealers in the first place, gave them the desire to become a drug dealer. They never would have been a drug dealer if not for those cops. Those cops are the ones who somehow brought them into dealing drugs. No, nobody would conclude that. The cops are using people who are already drug dealers in their already criminal minds and their criminal ways to bring about their purpose and their plan in the same way. God's not causing the criminals and the sinners and the horrible, heinous, evil things to be what they are. He's stepping into their evil, blinding them in their rebellion, using them in their already rebellious conditions to bring about his good purpose through their freely rebellious choices, not through their causally determined rebellious choices. So you can see the two side by side and to say, which one is more reasonable? Which one protects the character and the goodness of God? Which one is concluding that God is holy, 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 and he has nothing to do with the implication of their moral desires and evil? And I think clearly God using, knowing, and using the moral evil of free human beings for his good purpose is just, it's right, it's reasonable, 
It makes sense. And it has nothing to do with God being implicated as the cause or uh, author or instigator of evil in the hearts and minds of people as to, especially to the degree where they could not have done otherwise. Yeah. So is, is causation an overapplication of foreknowledge or, or how do we reconcile that for God's foreknowledge? Yeah. And there's a lot of debate over the, the concept of causation, because this is where you get into a lot of the philosophical debates of whether God, if God knows something's going to happen before he creates the person, then, and he still chooses to create the person, then ultimately he is causing that thing to happen. And that's kind of the logical steps that people will take. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem with that kind of worldview or that kind of philosophical meandering is one, the scriptures never come to that conclusion. They don't tell us this. This is things that philosophers are coming up with based okay. upon their limited concept and idea of um, omniscience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and if omniscience means omnideterminism, then they may have a point. But I don't believe that that necessity um, it, it comes from certainty. In other words, you can't conflate certainty with necessity. William Lane Craig does a really good job explaining this. But something can be certainly known without being determined by the one who knows it. Um, if, if, for example, we had a crystal ball in front of us right now and that we knew tomorrow um, at noon, uh, Putin um, vacates his, his leadership role um, as, you know, pr- president or whatever he is. Uh, and that would be great if that happened. But let's say we saw we have a crystal ball and we saw for certainty that's going to happen tomorrow mm-hmm. at noon. Would we be, therefore, the cause of that happening? No. We know it. We know it for certain. Certain knowledge of something is not directed to causation of that thing that knows it. Now, a Calvinist might push back on the philosophical side of that things and say, well, if you were the creator of Putin and you were the one who created Putin and, and, and all these things from the very beginning, then that would be a totally different situation. And I understand where their argument's coming from. But again, what I think they're doing is they're, they're, they're stepping into a philosophical concept of a very linear timeline of when did God know something and the, the logical order of decrees and all these kinds of things. And it's exactly the same argument, by the way, that the reforms, reform people get into when they're talking about lapsarianism and superlapsarianism and infralapsarian and sublapsarian. They're all talking about the order, the logical order of God's decrees versus his knowledge versus decrees and all how all that plays out. So even among reformed thinkers, there are differing philosophical perspectives with regard to the way in which God decrees, whether he decrees uh, election prior to the fall um, or after the fall, logically prior, knowing knowing what the fall would do. And it gets very philosophical and very, you ever want to fall asleep very quick, pick up a book and start <laughs> reading on the lapsarian controversy. The point is, is all of these philosophical ramblings this is where Molinism steps in. Molinism tries to answer, attempts to answer the, the problem of omniscience, is how can God be all-knowing, creating all things, yet men still have a libertarian freedom of the will, mm-hmm. um, uh, the eternal now view of God, Boethian uh, uh, perspective. Um, there, there's four or five other theories out there. Um, the Calvinistic theory, by at least held by John Calvin and most Calvinists, is the theory that says the only way God can know it is if he determines it. The right. only mm. the only real answer is the reason God knows that Peter's going to deny him three times is because God's sovereign and unchangeably ordained for Peter to deny him three times. In other words, God doesn't know anything that people will freely do. He only knows what he has determined, decreed, 
causally brought about through secondary causes and, and secondary means, but he's the one who ultimately determines what they will do. Um, and, and we just reject that. We think that's a very low view of God. We don't think that God has to control both sides of the chessboard in order to ensure his outcome and his victory. We just think that he's so good at chess that no matter what opponent comes against him, he can always win. He can always counter their moves and, and be victorious because he's just better than they are at chess, not because he determines what they're going to do. Um, and so it's just a, it's a philosophical kind of back and forth. And I understand the quandaries of it. I've wrestled with them myself. But I have to go to biblical revelation as my authority, not to a philosophical conclusion right. based upon uh, a something that's beyond my brain's capacity to fully grasp or fully understand. What, what I do think the scripture speaks out against, though, is calling good evil or evil good. And I think that the Calvinistic system steps into that when it ultimately says that the reason the molester molests is because God sovereignly and unchangeably ordained it for his glory. Um, that's that to me seems to be calling something that's very evil good. Um, and and I can't imagine that that would be something that God would want us to do if the scripture doesn't uh, clearly reveal that that's what he's doing. Yeah. Man, it's interesting, too, on the the evil acts that we've the, the scenarios we bring up and they're discussing. I, I don't enjoy talking about them, but Leighton, I, I don't know if you have personally done it, but I but I think you have played clips of some some big hitting Calvinists that. It always takes a while from the to say it, but when pressed, hey, did the molestation of, of a child or you know all this is that because God decreed it? They'll they'll they're hesitant, but eventually they do. To be consistent, they'll say yes, God did predetermine that to happen. Uh, yeah. do, do you want to speak on that or, or push back against that? Yeah, and like I, I mentioned before, um, uh, Calvinists are not a monolithic group. Okay. Sure. And so um there are going to be different Calvinists um that that come to different conclusions with regard to these things. Um I, I was gonna pull up one a particular article, um, if I could find it. Um well there, there's 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 several of them that you can find at Sociology 101 if you were looking uh, for that particular uh, doctrine and have a quote from Piper oh, okay. that even actually uses molestation of children as one of the examples of something right. God brings about for his glory. Um, and so it's not something we're just like trying to misrepresent Calvinists or trying to make them emotionally sound, you know, using emotional emotive uh, examples just to make them right. sound bad. We actually have from John Piper's website, a quote from Mark Talbert, and Piper's the editor of the book, where he says he brings about all things, including, as, as horrible as it may seem, uh, Auschwitz, uh, the molestation of children, everything is brought about by by God, ultimately. And and then they even go on to explain that that doesn't mean that he knew it's going to happen and, and permits it. But they actually go on to say that they disqualify that as one of the options and say that it's ultimately... Bring, being brought about by his sovereign and unchangeable decree, his plan, his purpose. Um, and we, we, we stand against that. We, we think that that is a, a anti-biblical. We think that that flies in the face of what we know of God and what, how God has revealed himself um, through, throughout the scriptures, a holy God who's separate from evil. Um, and, and what's interesting is that Piper and others talk about God's holiness, and they'll use the word separate, just like we do. Yeah, but it's almost like they, they they talk out of two sides of their mouth, so to speak, when they're talking about the two different doctrines. When talking about sovereignty, they're they're fine with making everything interconnected within within what God does. But when they talk about holiness, they talk about God being separate from evil and the moral uh, evil of the world. And we're going, okay, 
listen, the reason we're defending free will is because it's a defense of holiness. It's defense of God's separation from that which is evil. God doesn't have to be the cause of or the determiner of evil in order to be sovereign because the word sovereign doesn't mean determinism. It means he has the right to rule as he pleases. And we right. believe that he, he he's not pleased to meticulously control all actions, desires, and choices of men. Yeah. Man, uh, I want to do a <clears throat> ask you this. I didn't know at what point, but just to be fair, because we asked this of the Calvinists, but uh, for you, Leighton, in, in your in your view, I guess if it's from provisionism, um, are there texts that even you struggle with still that in your camp you go, man, that's a that's a tough one to swallow. You know, I've, I think I've got to the point where the text, at least in, in, involved with this debate between a Calvinistic reading and a, and a non-Calvinistic reading, there's no text that I'm not satisfied with. That um, the the ones that would probably be, take the most time to kind of unpack is like I would say like Acts thirteen forty eight, um, for example, when it talks about um, the the Gentiles, all who are appointed to eternal life, believed. Um, that narrative does using just that proof text does kind of sound like at first reading, it's supporting this concept and idea that God has appointed Gentiles, certain Gentiles to be believers. And that's the right reason they're believing. Sure. Um, I think read in context, however, especially when you look back up at verse 46 of that verse, there's a contrast between the Jews and the Gentiles there, the Jews who, uh, who deemed themselves unworthy for eternal life versus the Gentiles. Um, and the way in which that's interpreted, uh, I, I think, is is very easily explained now that I understand it. But it was passages like that that really kind of kept me into Calvinism uh, for a long time because oh, okay. I didn't know how else to interpret them because I hadn't really studied it very very much. And when you understand original languages, it helps to understand that, for example, the word tasso in that passage can has a range of meanings that can be understood in different ways. There's different explanations as to what uh, idioms are used within the first century as to, to why it might mean this or that. And so there are reasons that Calvinists are Calvinists. There's a reason I adopted Calvinism is that there are verses when understood from that perspective, sounds like they're supporting Calvinism. Um, but it, it's it's like the analogy I use on my podcast a lot. It's kind of like those bleaks that you see with a picture of the young woman or the old woman. It's, it's all the same lines. But depending on how you look at that picture, a duck or a rabbit, you know, right. it, it looks like a different image. Um, and it's the same kind of a concept when it comes to the scriptures. If you're so used to seeing the duck, it's almost impossible to even fathom the rabbit. Right. And you're really not qualified to really discern which one the author is intending to draw until you're willing to be objective enough to really view both sides of the debate yeah. and look at the scholars from both sides to say, how is the best of the best scholars? Understanding John six forty four from both sides before I conclude, God is irresistibly gracing some people and withholding that from all others based upon John, what John six forty four six forty four says, versus really understanding the context historically of what Christ is doing that He's not revealing Himself to everyone yet that He's hiding the truth in parables uh, that He's he, he doesn't draw people to to uh, the, through the gospel until He's raised up until He ascends to heaven then He commissions them to go and to tell the world when you understand that context then you understand verses like that in that context and it makes much more sense. Cool. Anything? No, it's I, okay. I've enjoyed this so <laughs> yeah, much. Yeah, I've enjoyed the discussion, Leighton. So so today. Um, how, how do you find yourself engaging with Calvinists now? Do you do you kind of go like Chris and I, where 
hey, man, let's just have a discussion. We know we disagree, but let's have a discussion. Or are you like that? Or do you still look out for points where you go, okay, I can't let that slide. We we have to <laughs> address this. Yeah, I mean, on, on my podcast, obviously, I'm I'm engaging with the disagreements. I'm, I'm purposefully uh, challenging Calvinists and their presuppositions and their exegesis of particular text and where I find that they're you know, falling short in understanding the text pr- appropriately, um, as they are with me. Typically, they're they're doing the same thing. At least the 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 well-meaning Calvinist like Eli, who's a friend, um, I, I think he he would he would be thinking of me the exact same way that I'm thinking of him. Is that he's a good Christian brother, but he's interpreting some text wrongly, and he's coming to the wrong conclusions because of that. And so um, he can challenge me on what I believe, and I can challenge him on what he believes. And and hopefully we're bringing sound argumentation to bear and good uh, exegetical uh, principles uh, to understand these terms. But this is where I think we have a huge upper hand on Eli, is that the reason Eli and I disagree with each other, if his view is true, is because God decreed for Leighton Flowers to misunderstand his own word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that, that to me is baffling. A uh, huge, huge quandary for the Calvinist is that ultimately the reason Leighton Flowers disagrees with you is not because he's unregenerate. Eli doesn't believe I'm unregenerate. Eli believes I'm a child of God. I'm elect, mm-hmm. according to Eli. But he's also elected, for some reason, for me not to be quite as bright as Eli, at least as far as soteriology goes. Mm-hmm. And he's ultimately elected Eli to understand Romans 9 better than he's elected Leighton Flowers to understand Romans 9. And the reason we have this disagreement is because God has decreed for us to have this disagreement among uh, uh, the church. Uh, and that seems to me to be just implausible, uh, untenable. The reason we have disagreements among brothers and sisters in Christ is because we have free will. <laughs> we have the ability to deliberate and to make decisions. And we have false understandings and false concepts and false ideas, not because God decreed for us to, but because we have sin and because we have uh, um, uh, influences and things that that lead us astray. I mean, in other words, my errors doctrinally are Leighton's fault, mm-hmm. not God's, right, <laughs> not right, because right. God decreed for me to misunderstand himself. Yeah. It doesn't make any rational sense to me. And so that's, I think, one of the strongest arguments against a friend like Eli is just to look back at him and say, Eli, Either I'm right, and God has granted us the ability to make libertarianly free choices, or he is determined for me to be wrong, for the praise of his glory, no less. And I don't know how a Calvinist can really uh, answer that except to say, yeah, you're right, but I'm going to keep acting uh, in an untenable, irrational way and try to convince you to believe like I do, even though I believe that the only way you're going to believe like I do is if God decrees for you to believe like I do. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I think that's the point I find uh, comical because that that came up in our discussion with him that, um, you know, we joked, hey, well, if we're not Calvinists, it's because God predetermined it to be so. And he said, well, that's not a valid objection. And we said, well, I know, but it's true. And he goes, well, yeah, it's true. So so then <laughs> why continue the conversation trying to convince us when it's it's ultimately not up to you? And anyhow, it's, I find that kind of stuff funny. So what else yeah. we got? We're coming up on an hour and a half. I, I mean, <clears throat> I, I've definitely enjoyed the time, so I, I don't man. know that 
Yeah. I, I, I mean, do you have any, <clears throat> sorry, have we, have we basically covered the, the sort of the main uh, objections and, and that, or, or are there other uh, sort of big ones that are thrown your way? Yeah, I mean, obviously, every one of the points in the tulip acrostic has its own debates. Um, you know, the, the L is oftentimes the biggest focus of limited atonement. And we already kind of a, a talked about that with the mm-hmm. provision of the atonement through the serpent lifted on the desert and lifted in the desert in the same way Christ is lifted for the world and and, and actually applied to those who look to him in faith. Um there's a lot of debate over the irresistibility of grace, but we've already talked about kind of the concepts and ideas that if, you know, gift doesn't have to be irresistibly given in order for the giver to get full credit for giving the gifts. Mm-hmm. Um, the unconditional election part, part process, we've talked about how, yes, God can unconditionally choose to save people not based upon their nationality or their morality, but still conditioned upon their faith in Christ. And that is the condition of, that the scripture seems to lay out pretty clearly. And so, and, and of course, we spent a lot of time on inability, the, the first, the T of, of, of the, the concept of uh, enmity does not mean uh, inability. Uh, slavery does not mean inability to confess that you're enslaved. Um, deadness does not mean uh, uh, unable to accept the life-giving truth so as to, to live. Um, and so all of those, I think we've, we've kind of touched on all the major points of that, which, you know, is different from the the tulip uh calvinism that that concept of of tulip um and and i i my hope is that listeners to this broadcast and others will at least examine the best scholars from both worldviews before they come to their conclusions and now people who are already kind of sealed in their perspective um kind of sticks in the mud so to speak I, i've landed on this perspective and this is where i am i could you know i'm not i'm not moving um, they're probably not going to get a lot out of these kinds of discussions because they're kind of sealed in the way they think uh, and the way they believe. But I, I, I really want to push people just to, to be good Bereans, to be open to what God may be teaching you about himself uh, and how he works. And, and also ask yourself, what practical good is there in believing that God is ultimately controlling your desires and choices? What practical good can that be for you, uh, especially if you're dealing with habitual sins, as I have in my life? And I had a struggle with that as a Calvinist, a young Calvinist, and was dealing with uh, my own addictions and my own sinful thoughts, and, and as many, uh, if not all men do at one point in their, in their lives. And then ultimately being, being convinced that the reason I was dealing with those addictions is because God decreed for me to deal with those addictions mm-hmm. for his glory, no less. And I was actually told by a Calvinistic mentor that the reason I was dealing with lust and those issues was to keep me humble. Hmm. Uh, okay, what, what, what is every addict looking for? An excuse, a rationalization yeah, sure. for their addiction. And he gave me the best one you could possibly imagine. Wow. God sovereignly and unchangeably decreed for your lust and your addictions to keep you humble and to glorify himself. Wow. Well, now I got exactly what I need to continue right where I am in my addiction but versus taking gonna, ownership. Golly. That's what I was going to ask you. So, so did you buy into that excuse? Did you embrace it? Yeah, I did. Oh, I did for wow. many years, uh, which, which just continued to make me uh, more, <laughs> more addicted yeah. and, and, and further fall further into my addictions. Um, it, it, Everybody knows, anybody who's been through the 12-step programs, those kinds of things, the first thing you have to say is, this is my choice. I'm the addict. Yeah. I, my, it's, you own your sin. 
Now, granted, most Calvinists would, would say, you're not supposed to think that way. You know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't think that way. But I always push back and say, okay, what are the logical implications of the claims of your system? If the logical implications of the claim of your system is that the reason that I am falling into this addiction is because God sovereignly and unchangeably decreed for me to be in this addiction, then the logical implications is that God is the one who's the cause of my addiction, not me, not my choices, not really. And therefore, what is my only hope? God, stop decreeing it. Stop decreeing my lust. Stop decreeing my addiction. That's your only hope. You become, in a sense, a victim of whatever you think God has decreed for you to be mm-hmm. versus saying, no, God has provided all that I need to resist temptation. He has provided me a way out. He has provided me accountability. He has provided me a church. He has provided me brothers who sharpen my iron and challenge me and that I have to be honest with who I am and with what I'm struggling with. And I have to be real. I have to be vulnerable. It is it is on Leighton, not on a divine, sovereign, unchangeable decree before the creation of the world that I have no control over. You have to take individual ownership of your choices. We see this in every other walk of life, if you think about it. You see people say, well, I'm in this condition because of the color of my skin, mm. because of my gender, right. because of who my parents are. Because of the government, the man is keeping me down. Mm-hmm. Everybody, even a lot of Calvinists out there are, are strong, independent type Republican, uh, libertarian types, right? You have to take individual ownership of your responsibility. The same is true in your religious world. You have to take independent in, uh, ownership of your responsibility, responsibility of your choices. And what Calvinism does, whether it recognizes it or not, is undermining that independent responsibility of your choices. And it can cause, not it always does, but it can cause people to fall into a fatalistic way of thinking about their own choices in life. And it can and it can cause damage to the point where people really legitimately can give up ownership of their own choices and abrogate their responsibility over to God. Oh, I'm supposed to humble myself? Not really. God is supposed to humble me through some irresistible work of grace. Mm. Instead of saying, no, that's your responsibility. You need to go get alone in a closet, and you need to own up for who you are and what you've done. Man, I seems you don't like do that, opposing- you're going to continue to fall into addiction and to destruction. See, I always understood the the no excuse scenario, uh, and I I would apply it to salvation. I never I never thought about like sin, like having an addiction, and, and going, well, yeah, God decreed me to be this way, and and so, man, it, it's interesting, Leighton, because if you you in that scenario, if you were to tell your Calvinistic brothers and sisters, hey, here's what I'm going through, but I can't stop until God makes me. I mean, that's that's ridiculous, but consistent. <laughs> well, what about yeah. why and, preach and, and, in church? And, and, and to be fair, if you're talking to Eli or you're talking to Chris Day or you know John Piper or any other Calvinist in the world, um, they would probably tell you the same thing. No, you can't think of it that way. Right, um, right. I, there's, even, there's even a clip of John Piper in a prison who's being pushed on this issue. Uh, different, a little different topic, but pushed kind of on the same kind of issue. And he says, and he says this, he says, sometimes you have to be more biblical than you are reformed. And he's, what he's actually saying, which we, we love that clip because we said, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Be more <laughs> biblical than you are Calvinistic. That's what, that's what you should do. Um, but what he's trying to say is, is yeah, believe that way, but you've got to act like your will is free. Yeah. You need to believe God decrees whatsoever comes to pass, but you still need to act like you have personal responsibility for your choices because they know full well it's the only tenable livable way to live is that you have ownership of your choices 
And so I think deep down, most of them know that living like a Arminian, preaching like an Arminian, so to speak, or provisionist, is the practical way of living life. Though theologically, in our you know little uh, Starbucks, you know our seminary libraries and uh, little spiritual diadems, it's it's fun to philosophize about God's sovereign control over every, everything. But yeah. when it comes to real life and where the rubber meets the road, I think they know full well that establishing and, and maintaining libertarian free will is the only way to go. Yeah, man. And so, yeah. so going back to it, uh, Layton, I don't want to keep picking on you, but in that, and you, you had, you had that excuse, you embraced it, but in your heart, did you know, no, I am responsible for this. Yeah. It's, it's hard to remember now being so long ago, sure. exactly what my thought process was, but I, I do vehemently remember praying God, take this thorn from my flesh because that that's the way I applied that verse. Yeah. I'd applied my own addiction as dealing with, it was about the time the internet came out was in my, you know, college years. And uh, so it's one thing to resist, you know, walking into the store down at the street, you know, and buying a, you know, girly magazine, that's pretty easy to resist doing, but imagine walking out your door and there's a, you know, magazine right there on your doorstep every single morning. Right. Well, now it's at a, it's at the touch of a button uh, anywhere you go. And so it, it was one of those addictions that was it was too readily available and too easy still is in in our world today and and when you fall into those kinds of addictions then you're you're looking for okay a way out you're saying okay what what needs to happen how does this how do how do i change do i even want to change and and whenever philosophically and theologically there are certain concepts that become kind of roadblocks or hurdles in your mind as to how you are to deal with those addictions and behaviors, it can have a detrimental impact on your healing and the process in which you, with which you deal with those kinds of, of issues. And for me, and it, it's not true. I'm not trying to put this onto all Calvinists, like every Calvinist who ever has dealt with, dealt with addiction is having the same problem I had. I, I'm, I, I can't speak to them. I'm telling you how it affected me. Uh, and how it impacted my own dealing with sin and problems. And so, uh, and, that, and that's also not to say just because you're an Arminian or you're a non-Calvinist that you're not going to deal with addictions too. Obviously, that's not the case either. It's, it's, it can just, it can impact, I think, the process of healing and also maybe even delay the process of healing when you're not willing to fake, take the first step of the 12-step program, which is own your mistakes yeah. as your own. And that, that, I think, means that you have to consistently apply your theology. It's, it's scary stuff, man, because if you had told me 10 years ago, because uh, that's my struggle to filth on the Internet. If you told me 10 years ago, hey, that, that's just how you are and, and you won't stop seeking it. You won't stop lusting until God changes you. I, I mean, that's a license to go do keep doing what I want to do. That mm -hmm. That's awful, man. I mean, that's not how we live. That's not how we preach. We Tell people to repent, turn to Christ. Uh, Acts 17, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That's how we need to be living and walking, commanding people to repentance, not, well, if you're struggling with sins, because God decreed that you did that. But nobody preaches that way either. Yeah. And, and Calvinists don't yeah. preach that way either. I, 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 Chris and I really hate the inconsistency when it comes to Calvinist preaching versus what they say behind closed doors. Because they tend... And again, I don't know all Calvinists, but they tend to preach provisionism. But then, you know, when the mics turn off, they go, but 
really it's you you can't call to Christ. It's only if God makes you and if you're elect. Yeah, it's it's a form of what we call double speak, and I don't think it's necessarily an intentional uh, being intentionally duplicit duplicitous in that regard. Um, but it, it is a form of double speak. It, it's it, when you hold to, and again, it, it's a debate whether it's it's a contradiction or not. Uh, but even Calvinists, like I've said, have called it like J.F. Packer called it an antinomy. Which what is he saying? It seems like two contradictory concepts. You're responsible for what you do, but yet God's responsible for what you do. That's basically what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, God's decreed unchangeably what you will do, but yet you're responsible for what you do. All, yeah. all what they're ultimately saying is that both are responsible. Both are ultimately the 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 ones doing this, but yet you're going to be held, you know, punishable for what God decreed for you to do somehow and mysteriously. Um, and so when you hold to two contradictory concepts, you can talk about one of the concepts. Perfectly honestly, you're responsible for what you do. You have a choice, you know, blah, 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 blah. But then on the other side, when you're talking over here, you could say, not A is true. A is true, A is true, A is true. Not A is true, not A is true, not A is true. Right. And so um, when you hold to a contradiction, you're going to say contradictory things all the time. You'll see it in Calvin's work all throughout his writings. And you'll see this all the time where people quote from Spurgeon and Calvin and other Calvinists. And they'll find verses that say all these things that are, are pro-provisionist or pro-Arminian. And then you'll find all these other verses that say like pro-Calvinist and, and pro-determinists. And you're like, that's perfectly normal. Why? Because they believe A and not A. They believe both of these things are true. And they just appeal to mystery as how they can be reconciled. Hmm. Um, and, and that's why you see so many, uh, this kind of the frustration uh, from many of us who are just like going, how can you say that while you believe this to be true? Right. And then that's when they, you know, oftentimes punt to mystery, just, well, it's mysterious. It's beyond full comprehension. Um, and we're just like, nah, we, we just don't think that that's a mystery the Bible affords. We think you're you're creating this mystery, this contradiction by affirming determinism. And we don't believe the Bible teaches determinism. Yeah, fair enough. What were you writing down over there? Well, I just got to, I mean, I guess if, if we're going to wrap, sort of wrap it up, yeah, I got I just so. a couple little questions. Um uh, I, it's a, a bit of a change here, but what, what does latent flowers do to sort of unwind or, uh, do you have any uh, hobbies outside of sitting in front of a, a screen or, or lecturing? <laughs> yeah, I, I used to prior to doing the podcast and theology stuff, I used to, um, you know, be, be big in politics and watching, you know, okay. a lot of the talking heads and sports. I, I watched a lot of, of, you know, sports games on television and kind of followed my, my teams like the Dallas Cowboys and the, the Dallas Mavericks. So, you know, I was a big Mavericks and a Cowboys fan and a few college teams. Uh, my, my dad uh, was, is from Oklahoma, so he's a big Sooner fan. And so we watched the Sooners. And so I spent a lot of time watching those things. And it, it was a really interesting thing. In about 2014, when I went back to get my dissertation, um, I started studying this doctrine more in depth and, and uh, really trying to hone in what I believed about it, starting the podcast about the same time that I was doing that really in, in reflection of a class I was teaching for Dallas Baptist University at the time. I become an adjunct pr- professor about the same time. And so it's like I traded in um, all of those other pastimes that are kind of seem like time wasters now that I look back on them mm. uh, for my theology geeking out with the friends. And so <laughs> Um, it, it really is. This is kind of my pastime is theologizing and theology, uh, debating theology or reading about theology, listening to theology podcasts, 
Um, that, that's kind of stuff I do in my pastime. I often walk when I'm doing it because I try to get my 10,000 10, steps in a day. Mm-hmm. And so that, that helps uh, a little bit to stay active. But usually when I'm walking, 99% of the time, I've got a theology podcast or something rolling in my ears and listening to stuff and thinking of through concepts and ideas. Um, that's kind of been my, my pastime. And it, it, it's kind of swung of a pendulum uh, to maybe to a degree that I need to cor- correct it a little bit because I was I was telling my my wife this the other day is uh, I've, I've become so disconnected from the things on the news that it's kind of become dangerous a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I walked in the other day several weeks ago and uh, my wife had the news on and it was talking about the war in U- Ukraine mm-hmm. and and I said oh we're at war and my wife said. We have been at war for three days, Leighton. <laughs> I said, what? I said, I didn't know. Because I, I, every time I get in the car, it's a theology podcast. Every time I drive it, I mean, I don't listen to the news anymore yeah. because it's just, it, for whatever reason, it bores me or whatever else. And so um, I've tried to be a little bit more balanced, at least every once in a while, once a week or something, <laughs> turn on the, the news and get a report on what's going on in our world because I, I've kind of... Uh, uh, unfortunately, totally disconnected with some of the things that are happening. And well, uh, I, I think not, people understand why. Sometimes you turn on the news and it's just depressing. Yeah, but, um, I'm not yeah. sure when this will drop, but uh, what, do you have any take on – last night uh, Politico dropped that uh, the Supreme Court – I mean, at least in the, the articles uh, are, are looking to overturn that Roe versus Wade. What, what, do you have any thoughts on on that? Yeah, the, the most I know about that is I actually just before I got on here opened up Twitter and one of my theology buddies had tweeted about the about that. And that's okay. the only reason I even had heard about that prior okay. for you you just now saying it. Um, you know, I have no idea what's going to come about that. Um, the the issue is is because it's been so long since that law has passed, there's become a a cultural norm. Mm-hmm. When it comes to abortion, yeah. that it's it's going to be almost impossible to to back up and 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 to redeem that you know decision and that direction of our culture. Um, I think anytime, obviously, that the culture begins to correct back towards right living is a positive thing and a good mm-hmm. thing. But I think we would be deceived into thinking that a change in the law is actually going to change much of people's practice. When it sure. comes to these issues, because yeah. if there's a will, there's a way. And if if people want to uh, sin, <laughs> that sure. prohibition, mm-hmm. you know, if 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 people want to take away alcohol, and I'm not trying to make a statement about alcohol, I'm mm-hmm. not I'm not trying to say that that's completely sinful. Um, that that's not my point. Sure. But when you try to when you try to have uh, legislate morality by saying you can't drink and you try to remove that, people are just going to create. Uh, lines and ways of making that happen uh, through their own uh, through their own devices, and so it, it, it could end up creating all kinds of other issues that are going to come up uh, uh, that our culture is going to have to deal with in one way or another. Um, and it, it's that that one is a particularly uh, controversial and heart wrenching issue because a, a generation or more like three generations of of babies have been uh, killed in the mother's womb and how, how do you reverse that kind of evil? Mm. You know, uh, it, it's, it's a huge cultural shift and something that's going to have to be a, 
addressed for years to come, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Now, are you, I assume you're pleased with Texas's move, but do you think ultimately it should come down to the state being able to decide or, or do you think just a complete well, abolishment? What, when it comes to, when it, when it comes to life, it's, it's, it's one of those things that if you believe life begins at conception, mm-hmm. then there is no choice in the matter. You, right. You're protecting the yeah. life right. that exists. I mean, there's not really a, a decision in the matter. Um, I, I understand the, the different sides of the debate, understand why people have various views. I mean, because of the culture we've grown up in, it's not such a black and white issue to a lot of people. But for those of us who believe in, divine creation and a God uh, mm-hmm. who creates life and the value of life. There's really just not a lot, a whole lot of compromise that we can morally, uh, you know, give on to say, Oh, okay, well, you know, it's okay in this case or this case to take the life of another person. You know, we would, we would just never do that. And so uh, those kinds of moral decisions and those kinds of arguments are, have been, you know, plaguing the church for, you know, the last 30 years plus 40 years plus, and we'll continue to, and I don't think anything the Supreme court does or says is really going to uh, change the the fabric of our culture when it comes to the value, human value of life and the way people perceive it. Okay. Yeah. So I, I appreciate that take. Fair. I never thought of that side of it. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, do you, if, if you, what, is there a characteristic um, that you think, or, or it could be a list or whatever, but that you think that all men should uh, intentionally seek to, to grow and to develop? And, and what might that characteristic be if, if you have something off the top of your head? Um, specifically men? Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, one of, the, one of the things that I'm seeing, especially in our culture, is just a, uh, a desensitizing of men being manly, you know, Mm -hmm. being true men, um, uh, almost in a sense of demonizing, uh, manly behaviors or things that are distinctly, uh, masculine as being wrong. Right. Um, and that, that, that is a shift in culture that I think is going to be devastating to future men. And I have three boys of my own, and this is something I fear for them is because they have to see the example of true biblical manhood which is, is not necessarily being the stoic, you know, never cry type of, uh, you know, rough and gruff type of, of manhood that sometimes was wrongly painted in, you know, the 50s or 60s or something of that nature that, that men never cry, that kind of thing. But instead of understanding that, that true men um, are strong, are leaders, are, ha- can, can express opinions, can show love, uh, can serve. Um, and so the the feminizing of our culture, so to speak, where um, things that men do that are distinctly masculine are seen as uh, as abuses or um, as seen as um, uh, you know just just as um, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word as uh, almost almost a disease to culture, like it, it becomes a um, uh, something looked down upon by society <laughs> at every front. Um, that concerns me. And I, and I think that there has to be men who are willing to stand up to be men to say, um, yes, even men 
can speak to gender issues. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, even white men can speak to racial right. issues. Right. Uh, you know, it, it's like we have become so fearful about talking about anything that has to do with gender or race because of the the way in which our culture will demonize anybody who expresses opinions that differ from the mainstream media mm-hmm. and the way the culture is, is shifting versus saying there are there are principles that are true regardless of a white if a white male says it or not right um there are principles that are true regardless of the color of, or the gender of the person saying those things and we, we have so much happening in our culture that's completely things that 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 are completely off the radar of what we would even thought 20 years ago could happen right yeah. the whole the whole concept of of not of pronouns. There's a person that there's a friend of mine who is actually has to place on his, um, his email uh, signature Mm -hmm. for the work he is, he has to place his pronouns or he will be fired. And he's choosing, he's going to choose to be fired because he refuses to, to, Mm -hmm. to put his pronouns in who, who would have even, who would have even, Grasp the concept of yeah. having to name your pronouns. Goodness sakes, yeah. <laughs> that to me, my brain just hurts yeah. thinking about this kind of stuff. Sure. And I think men are gonna men have to be men here and have to lead mm-hmm. and have to step up. And this is that, that's true of women too, with regard sure. to this sure, issue. Yeah. Because a lot of this is hurting. If you think about it, a lot of what's happening in our culture is hurting women. Oh, absolutely. People, Without people, a doubt. They're, they're doing it under the guise of women's rights, right. but there are things that hurt. Women, when you get when you have a man who was born with penis, who is now competing in Olympic sports with women because he's identified as a woman now, yet has all the testosterone and the benefits of the physical male. And he's whooping the women in sports. And yet everybody's supposed to just go along and go, yeah, that's just, you know, we what what's that? What's that doing? It's hurting the women. Absolutely, it's not. Yeah. It's not protecting women. It's not helping women's rights. It's hurting women. When when you have gender neutral everything bathrooms, and you have a place where literally you can just say, "I identify as a woman now." I can walk into the woman's bathroom. What have you just done? You have just victimized every woman who needs privacy when she goes to the bathroom. Right. And and it's just amazing to me how uh, our culture today thinks they're protecting women or fighting for women. But actually, a lot of the decisions they're making are undermining the, the safety and rights of our women. And so men need to stand up and begin to call a spade a spade and say what's true is true and what's wrong is wrong and protect our women. Amen. Yeah. Okay, I got one, I got one more, and it's pretty, <laughs> it, it could be pretty broad. Uh, but uh, what do you think is the biggest uh, challenge facing the current uh, Western church? And that's broad. I get P- it. Probably. Yeah, that is broad. I mean, probably what what I just mentioned: gender roles, okay. uh, gender okay. identity, okay. Um, that that racial uh, divisions, um, it, the, all of those kinds of things are are becoming more and more in the mainstream of culture, and therefore uh, affecting the the role of the church and okay. how the church functions. Well, let me reframe um, it then. How, how yeah, should the church respond to those things? Well, one, it needs to respond. Okay. Um, that, that's part of the problem is that the church is so unresponsive to controversial issues for fear of being 
me tooed, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that you 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 become one of the bigots, you become one of the racists, you become one of the evil doers by simply standing on a Christian value that was universally held just 20 years ago. Right. You know? uh, even, even like you think of Barack Obama as one of the most liberal, uh, you know, presidents in, in modern day, yet mm-hmm. he believed a lot of the same things that people are still trying to uphold and believe with regard to uh, homosexuality and those kinds of things. When he ran for president and won, he held to the same views that many of us are still holding to now, but yet it's deemed as so out there and so far, uh, you know, fundamentalist and, and uh, conservative to the point of, of bigotry and, and racism and all this. Right. And it's just, it's, it's, it becomes, it becomes one of those issues that I think that we um, as, as Christians can become cornered and silenced Right. Because of the fear of what culture will say about us or do to us, um, and p- when they paint us in a corner, um, now don't hear me saying something that I'm not. Though there are a lot of these issues that are not black and white. There are mm-hmm. some gray area issues that are difficult to right. deal with, and the church sometimes, though taking a hard stand with regard to biblical principles, when dealing with personal pain, um, have to deal with people in love and grace not casting people out because they have same-sex attraction or, mm-hmm. you know, yelling people down as heretics or whatever else. And, uh, and to the point where you're not showing the love and the grace that, that Christ teaches us to show towards our enemies. Um, but th- there's a balance there between what true love looks like. True love mm-hmm. is willing to speak truth into right. even the controversial and difficult right, do- doctrines right. and t- teachings mm-hmm. of, our, of our culture. All yeah, right. absolutely, man. Okay. I, I'm, I'm done. I'm okay. Done. Well, I got, <laughs> I got one. If, if there's time, uh, Leighton, and man, I've, I've really been waiting to ask this one. Uh, what are your pronouns? No, I'm just kidding. So, while, <laughs> while, while we got you here, uh, when what? Uh, what well, I want to think this. When is it going to happen? When are we going to see a sit oh, yeah. down discussion between you and James White? <laughs> Well, I, I have no idea. I, he has a standing invitation to come on my program. I've, yeah. I've offered to go on his program. I've even called in during the call-in show to, to get to <laughs> Oh, I didn't know that. It didn't work. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I'm open to the discussion anytime. I mean, yeah. if you'd like to have one. Um, but I, I don't I don't foresee that happening. I, and that, that's his prerogative. Yeah. Uh, you know, he didn't have to. He has a lot of people who are vying for his attention and want to talk to him. So, I understand that. But um, the fact that he he uh, addresses my perspective so often seems to me to, to uh, it would be better and, and more profitable for the church for us to actually have a sit down open dialogue as two brothers should. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's had many of those kinds of dialogues with other people who are far, far more contentious and uh, rambunctious than I am. I think of Stephen Anderson, for example. Yeah, uh, the, He's the kind of the anti-Calvinist that stands on his pulpit and screams at Calvinists and calls them heretics and everything else. I've never done anything like that. Um, I've always treated Calvinists with respect. I don't call them heretics or cast them out of the kingdom. Um, and so I, I don't see why it would, it would be uh, uh, a difficult thing to, to simply schedule a time for us to have a discussion over our, our differing doctrinal views. But um, for whatever reason, um, he has decided not to, to engage with me on that on that front. So now, okay. if you, have, you, have had, ask, you have to ask him that question. Okay. <laughs> if you had to, if you had to pick, would you prefer a sit down or doing another debate with him? 
Like yeah, on... de- de- debates. I mean, a debate would be fine as long as you know he didn't have ridiculous stipulations like you can't use notes sure. or yet yeah, you can only use a Greek New Testament or something yeah, like that, yeah. which is one uh-huh. of the things he said off the cuff one time when I challenged him to debate. And I, I'm too stupid to to not have notes. I even mm-hmm. I don't preach without notes. I, even when I'm preaching something that I've preached 14 times, I still have my notes there. I, I'm just I'm not that bright. And so I don't know why he would want to tie my hands behind my back if I'm a kind yeah. of person that enjoys and needs notes. Uh, but, you know, uh, but no, that kind of stipulation on a person for debate is not going to be fruitful or helpful. Um, plus, debate, the parameters of a debate tend to, I think, keep people from digging into particular issues okay. and, and going you know, like us now. I mean, we're, we're having this back and forth discussion, asking questions, you know, pushing back, just like you guys did with Eli. I mean, that's that's just uh, why not have yeah, just right, a common right. uh, conversation and an exchange of ideas and uh, talk through uh, differing views. Um, I, I don't see I, I haven't had Chris date on several times. I've had many Calvinists on my program and people can go watch and see that I gave them just as much time as I've taken. I'm very fair with people who disagree with me. I let them talk. I let them answer the answer issues. Yeah. We talk over each other occasionally because that's a part of the having discussion. But um, I I think I've proven that I can have a a cordial, uh, reasonable conversation with people. And so I I don't see any reason we, we couldn't do something like that if he was ever willing. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm being honest, I would like it to be a, discussion i I just think when people have their own camp um they tend to listen to the other person not with their ears they listen through their camp and so i think a discussion um of you guys poking and and prodding i i I think it would i would enjoy watching it but i think Mm -hmm. it'd be super edifying for the church i I think that'd be good yeah so okay yeah i think it would bring some clarity to some issues that you know that oftentimes just get talked past in the you know the dueling uh, episodes you know uh, he's, he says that he correct, you know, he's corrected me on issues before and I've corrected him on issues before, but it's, it's a whole nother thing when you're face to face and, and, addressing, uh, a person's correction in, in front of them and saying, well, here's why I disagree with that point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you keep quoting this concept of choice meets out of context and, you know, I'd like to be able to uh, confront you to your face as to why you continue to misalign what I'm saying. Right. Um, and vice versa, there may be things that, He's heard me say several times that he would like to correct to my face and he would be able to do that yeah. if we were having a live conversation. But uh, I don't think that serves his purpose. Um, and so uh, he's, he's, you know, I can't, I, I don't want to philosophize James White. I don't know why he chooses the things he chooses. That's, that's between him and God. But, um, but I, I know my heart, I know my motivations and I can genuinely say that my motivation, my heart would be to bring clarity to points of contention uh, to help his audience as well as mine to understand why uh, we disagree with each other and and um, how we can still show each other a level of love and respect, even though we do disagree with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that may not be uh, the best interlocutor to do that with. Maybe I need to move from James White to somebody who's a, a better representation of the Calvinistic worldview if, if I'm wanting, uh, hoping to engage with that kind of in-depth uh, and loving kind of dialogue because it doesn't seem like Dr. White is the the, the appropriate uh, foil, so to speak, to provisionism. Yeah. Okay. I think we're going to wrap it up. Leighton, is there anything you want the listeners know, uh, something to check out, something you got coming down in the future? 
Yeah, I mean, we've we got broadcasts coming out every week, uh, new guests coming on, um, working on uh, several guests that I think people will enjoy hearing from besides just me, the talking head. Um, obviously, uh, uh, you know, I do the podcast to try to address some of the newer issues that are coming out in our modern culture and some of the things that are happening uh, among the, de the debate over Calvinism uh, in today's world. But uh, I like to have guests on occasionally to kind of hear a new perspective and a new voice. And so um, I, I know later this week, I've got Billy and uh, Matt coming on from the Bible Bro Down to talk about uh, those who've never heard the gospel. What about what about infants that die? Or what about those in far off tribe in the middle of nowhere who's never heard mm -hmm. the message of Jesus Christ? Uh, is, is, will, will God judge them uh, and hold them accountable for uh, not being a Christian if they don't even know who Christ was? Um, how do you deal with those kinds of things? And so uh, that'll be Thursday, this Thursday. So those that want, want to tune in, um, and I'm not sure when this is going to air, but edit that as needed. But Thursday, I think at one o'clock uh, central time, uh, we'll be having uh, Billy and Matt uh, to talk about that that concept. Yeah, I've seen that on your channel. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. So brothers and sisters, man, provisionism. Uh, what did you think? Was, there, was it well-defined? Did we clear up anything? Uh, Chris and I really enjoyed you know, sort of doing both sides. We had the Calvinism, mm -hmm. we had provisionism. If there's any questions you have, if you need something cleared up, please let us know. Rather, if you want to actually know, just go check out Layton's work <laughs> at Soteriology 101. Very, very good stuff. Uh, you won't be disappointed. So we're going to wrap this up, put a little bow on top. Layton, again, thank you for coming on. Yes, and brothers and sisters, this has been another good, good, true discussion. Until next time, God bless. God bless. And once again, God provided another true discussion. <laughs>